0: And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast that That you would do if you had nothing better to do. Yes. And today, the first time ever, we're recording from my house. Oh yeah, in Belgrade. It's a very spring-like day. Yeah, it's like in the 40s out. Mm. And at least there won't be traffic going by on 295. No, there won't be. We'll see how, if there's any other issues. There have to be issues. There There's can't, always some kind of issues. There issue. always will be an issue. Go. Um, You have an update, right? Yes. Actually, from our episode seven, which was in January of last year. So oh, it's so over, it yeah. over a year ago. It was over a year ago. It's in February now. We were talking about murders in Maine, and both of ours were men who murdered. We had three. Yes, we had three. We each talked about one, then we talked about one together. The one I talked about was Noah Gaston. Mm -hmm. The one, if you listened to the episode, and if you didn't, go back and listen to it. Yeah. Episode seven. He shot his wife, he supposedly heard an intruder Mm -hmm. uh, shot his wife at the top of the stairs, even though he said she was at the bottom. But anyways, he has gone through three lawyers, three teams of lawyers, or three... That's a red flag flag right there. He's fired them all, Uh and so his trial was supposed to take place, I think, last Friday fall. It's it's originally been, it's been yeah. yes, it's been postponed until November now. Yeah. Of twenty eighteen. So we'll see what happens. I don't know how many times you can fire there was that guy that fired his lawyers five times and then the judge said tough shit we could ask matt if we did i think her. we asked matt about that but maybe the not on maybe not murder. on but I, on I i would have i would microphone. think eventually it's up to the judge who says but then the problem is then there's a chance of a mistrial because you're not being represented yeah but like if you no but eventually the judge says you have to have, i'm going to assign you a lawyer and you have to keep him you yeah, can't that's keep firing true. your lawyers The guy that was was the five lawyers—they kept quitting because because if you could just keep firing your lawyers over and over again, you could just postpone your trial forever. If you're rich, you can do that. Well, he's not, and he ain't. Yeah. So that was my update. Okay. yes. One of my many and. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I need to update. I know the Yoga Twins, that was our number one episode, our first episode. Yes, our first one. And I think people now, of course, because other podcasts and crime shows keep copying us. I know. It's like like we're the trendsetters. So People Magazine uh, on their show is doing the yoga. And they actually call them the Yoga Twins, which I think we should sue them. For, yeah, for, for I copyright know, infringement? I don't know if we're the ones who made yes, that we up. Yes, we are. I mean, are. I mean, we should sue no them. No one has ever even thought of that we before. We should sue us. them. Definitely. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I don't really have any other updates. Okay. So I, 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 I should look because I'm sure there are well, some. Well, maybe. Maybe I can it's actually too late. do no, my job. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, do your job. Okay. One so time. now you're presenting Yes, us I'm presenting a, today. And remember, this is a rhetorical question, by the way. Or it doesn't have to be (laughs) Remember in our Isabella Stewart Gardner episode when I mentioned Aaron Moriarty of CBS News breathlessly asking the FBI agent if the thieves had gotten away with the perfect crime and the FBI agent was like, What the fuck? They didn't profit from it, so no. And he was kind of disdainful. And what did she mean about the perfect crime? That no one had been arrested and the paintings were still missing? You know, this isn't about the Gardner heist, my thing today. Okay. Because we already did that. And then, yeah, and now guess what? There's a podcast. Uh, I know. They and copied there's another one. Us. And, like, the Boston Globe or somebody's doing one, too. But in any case... You guys, we were there first. Right. But, anyway, okay. I'm constantly hearing people... Mention the perfect crime or call things a perfect crime. And what do they mean? That someone got away with a crime and didn't get arrested? Is that perfect? I prefer the definition in Dorothy L. Sayers' book, Unnatural Death. And you all know what I'm referring to. (laughs) No, of course you don't. It's one of the Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries, which is one of my favorite series. It's an English... series that, you know, was written in the 30s and 40s. And I believe you recommended it. I probably did. In any case, Lord Peter is trying to convince his Scotland Yard friend, Charles Parker, that a murder has been committed where it doesn't seem like the person who was old and dying was murdered at all. Hmm. And this is kind of from the book, although I took some words out. Lord Peter waves his hand at his shelves of books about crime and says, these only deal with the abnormal crimes. Parker says, what do you mean abnormal? And Lord Peter says, the failures the crimes that have been found out. What proportion do you suppose they bear to the successful crimes, the ones we hear nothing about? And naturally, Parker's annoyed because he's a cop, and he goes, in this country, we managed to trace and convict the majority of criminals. Mm. And Peter says, I know that where a crime is known to have been committed, you people managed to catch the perpetrator in at least 60% of the cases. But the moment a crime is even suspected, it falls, ipso facto, into the category of failures. After that, the thing is merely a question of greater or less efficiency on the part of the police. Hmm. But how about the crimes that are never even suspected? And I probably first read that more than 40 years ago, and it's always stuck with me. Mm -hmm. The perfect crime, as far as I'm concerned, is the one that no one knows has even been committed. If a few people hadn't pushed it, Charlie Cullen may have gotten away with the perfect crime, or crimes, in the hundreds. Cullen, possibly the most prolific serial killer in the U.S., Is believed to have killed hundreds of people. And he wasn't particularly clever. He didn't even try that hard to cover his tracks or plan his murders. But Charlie Cullen had just the right mix of insanity, opportunity, and enough luck to be employed by masters of that good old bureaucratic go-to cover your ass. Mm -hmm. Charlie Cullen didn't slip quiet and unnoticed through his long train of death. There were plenty of red flags, but no one wanted to look... Too hard at what they were waving at, Charlie was a nurse in New Jersey and Pennsylvania from nineteen eighty seven to two thousand and three, and that time he worked for nine hospitals <laughs> and is Jeez. believed to have yeah, wait till you hear that and is believed to have killed as many as four hundred people. Oh my God, even he can't remember them all. and before I start, though, I want to say I got most of my information from the good Nurse written in 2013 by Charles Graber. At the time he wrote the book, he's the only one that Cullen had talked to extensively about the crimes. It took him seven years to write it, and it's pretty thorough. It's got a load of footnotes that in a lot of cases have a lot of information that's just as interesting or even more interesting as the text of the book, and if you decide to get it, I'd recommend the ebook because you can hit the footnote and go oh, immediately to it. Oh, yeah, I like that it. on ebook. And, yeah. and a lot of the good details in this report I actually got from the footnotes so they're worth reading. Given the scope of Cullen's crimes, other than that, there's not a whole lot about them. There was a 60 Minutes episode where they talked to Cullen too when the book came out and he wasn't that great an interview. There was an episode of her Nurses hmm. Who Kill nurses that who kill. had a lot of information wrong. It's scary that enough nurses killed that there's actually a series. Yeah, well, it is interesting and we can talk about that. But um, it got a lot of information wrong and missed just whole yeah, aspects of no the surprise. thing. Here's Charlie's story. Charlie Cullen has described his childhood as miserable. That may be an understatement. He was born February 22, 1960, in West Orange, New Jersey, the youngest of seven children. His father died when he was seven, and his older siblings had a variety of issues, including drug problems and abusive boyfriends, that made Charlie's life pretty much a living hell. The first time he tried suicide was when he was nine. He mixed some stuff from a Aww. chemistry set with some milk, and all it did was make him sick. Mm. His attempts were never really serious, and there will be many, many, many attempts over his lifetime. He's still alive, by the way. And I'm not trivializing suicide here, but he found that he could get the attention and nurturing he craved by trying to kill himself, or seeming to try to kill himself, and you'll see more of that later. Well, I'm going to interject my opinion on large families right now, which that I, they make you want to kill yourself. No, <laughs> but I have said before one of the things I have against people having a lot of kids is there is no way you can ever if you've got more than three or four kids, you're not going to give them the attention they need, no, especially you're not. the younger ones. Nope. They'll always feel that they're not getting enough. T- yes, yeah, so I think sad. psychiatrists have said that. I read that somewhere too. It's true. But people had him, people had him, especially, you know, but in any case, he hated school and had no friends. Hmm. He was close to his mother, but she died in a car crash when he was a senior in high school in 1977. He always resented the fact he wasn't told immediately she was dead. He was just told to go to the hospital. He got a call at school. And when he arrived at the hospital mountainside, they told him she was dead and her body was already gone. Hmm. He felt they were lying to him about the body, and it and it infuriated him, and that fueled a lot of his issues. In 1977, he joined the Navy, where he was to spend six years. He was on submarines, and he was a target for harassment by his fellow sailors because he was a little weird and annoying. And I'm not making excuses for anything that he did, but he... Didn't have a good time in the Navy. He was treated harshly. For instance, one time when he fell asleep drunk because his alcoholism issues really bloomed in the Navy. While on uh, leave, like a weekend pass, his feet became painfully sunburned. And when he got back to the sub, they made him put on his shoes, tie him tight, and stand at his post for hours. Ah. I know. He was also frequently in trouble in the Navy. He was repeatedly busted down in rank and pay for refusing to obey orders. Hmm. As I said, his alcoholism became full-blown, and they tried to treat it with antabuse, that drug. I don't know if they still give that to people, but it makes you sick when When they drink. And And also AA meetings. In the Navy, he tried suicide at least three times, but admitted later he didn't feel they were serious attempts, although the last one put him in the infirmary, and he was out of the Navy shortly after. When he finally got out at the age of 23, he got his GED, He may have gotten that when he was in the Navy, I'm not sure. And he went to nursing school at Mountainside in Montclair, New Jersey, the same hospital that his mother's body had been brought to after her car accident. He was the only male student, and it was a situation he was comfortable in, having so many older sisters. He was more comfortable around women than men, uh, because I guess they were more nurturing or whatever. And it was a relief to him after the Navy. When he was asked by a classmate to run for class president, he didn't really want to, but she talked him into it. And he ended up really liking it. And the other students looked up to him. And it was the first time in his life that he felt special. Aww. Yeah. Because of women power. Yeah. And also just getting attention. While going to nursing school, he worked typical minimum wage jobs, but three at once. Despite hating the Navy, he liked wearing uniforms. Hmm. And all the jobs had them. He worked at Caldor's, Dunkin' Donuts, Roy Rogers. It was at Roy Rogers he met Adrian he took a shine to her and showered her with gifts to the point of obsession. Mm-hmm. At first, she found him really annoying. Any little things she said she liked, he got for her, and mm-hmm. she finally had to tell him to stop doing it. But she was impressed that he worked so hard at all his jobs, and he was so serious about becoming a nurse, and maybe he just wore her down, too. Six months after their first date, they were engaged. Ah. Yeah, They got married right after Charlie graduated as a registered nurse in 1987. They cut short their honeymoon so he could start his job at St. Barnabas in Livingston, New Jersey. The hospital had even told him he didn't have to do that, but he was determined. He was anxious to get going on his nursing career. His first job was on the burn unit at St. Barnabas, and it was the only certified burn unit in the state. And I won't go into the grisly details of the injuries or treatment. The book gets quite... Quite detailed about it, but you can imagine. People who worked at the hospital called the burn ward the scream ward. The treatment of choice was morphine, and overdoses were not unusual. Different body parts got different points when they assessed somebody's burn damage. The larger limbs got nine points. The nurses had what they called the rule of nines. You add up how many nine-point burns there are and add them to the person's age, and that's what the mortality rate was. For instance, a 50-year-old with 49 points, was 99% likely to die, or 99% dead, as they said. Charlie and Adrian got a little house in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, and he liked working the night shift. He also started taking classes for another degree at King College in New Jersey, so he wasn't home a lot, and it's not clear whatever came of those classes. But in the fall of 1988, they had their first daughter. Charlie was really into the kid at first, he had a habit of getting really enthusiastic about something new, then cooling to it. And that had already kind of happened with their marriage. Oh, yeah. I'm they sure. also got a puppy that he seemed to like a lot at first, but then, not so much. One day, Adrian came home from work, and the puppy was gone. Charlie said it must have gotten away. See, when the baby was taking a nap, he went out for a walk and left the door open a little, and the puppy must have gotten out. And Adrian couldn't believe it. All of it. Well, like... Him yeah. Him, uh, him taking a walk with the baby, Sleeping, taking her nap, yeah. yes. Leaving and the she, door open. She was about six months old in the time, leaving the door open. The puppy disappearing. It was a little much for her. She had already started thinking he was a little odd about things. <laughs> yeah. But he told her not to worry. He knew the baby wouldn't wake up, and it made her wonder if he'd given the baby something to stay mm, asleep. Jesus. By this time, Charlie was spending most of his time when he was home in the basement, where he had his old Navy footlocker full of booze. He liked to sit down there in the dark and drink. Hmm. Her family and friends told her to stick the marriage out. <clears throat> it was a marathon, not a sprint, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. You have to work at it, etc. And she did, but she was beginning to feel there was something seriously wrong with Charlie. For instance, the Cullens' neighbors had an old beagle, Queenie, she used to wander over to their house and Adrian would let her in and then either bring her home or the neighbors would come over to get her. No! No, 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 don't tell me. One day, the neighbors found Queenie dead in the alley next to the Collins' house, and the vet said she'd been poisoned. Aww. Charlie didn't know anything about it, of yeah, course. I bet he didn't. And here's another thing that happened. Adrian had some photos from the baby's daycare on the counter. I guess she started taking to the baby to daycare after the puppy yeah, disappeared. I can't blame her. Um and someone, it had to have been Charlie, took a scissors and cut all the boys out of the photos. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. In February of nineteen ninety one, so this was almost four years after he started his job at St. Barnabas, a pharmacy nurse at the hospital noticed something weird about some I V bags. The port looked used, but the bags were full. So full they were leaking. And by the way, there's going to be some medical stuff in this. And if anybody who's listening is a nurse or a doctor or in the medical profession, it may sound like I'm oversimplifying, and I am. But in any case, she showed her supervisor the bags who thought they looked suspicious too and called the assistant director of security, Tom Arnold, Not not the one I was in, (laughs) Uh, but he was a former cop. He sent the bags to the pathology lab, and the bags were definitely suspicious. They were only supposed to contain saline and heparin, an anti-clotting agent, but it also had insulin in it, a lot of insulin, the bags, which if you get too much insulin, you have serious violent symptoms, can go into a coma, and can die. This we'll find out later. That's good to know. Yeah. Three days later, a patient in critical care, Anna Byers, was put on a heparin drip. Within a half hour, she was in a cold sweat, shaking, and sick. Blood work showed her insulin was off the charts. They gave her orange juice and tried some other things, but it didn't help. She was supposed to have surgery, but was too sick, so her doctor told them to remove the drip. When they did, she suddenly got better. Hmm. When they hooked it up again, she was sick again. Gah! Almost to the point of coding, and for those of of you, there may be some people out there who aren't familiar with coding who haven't watched medical shows, but that means when you're when you're shutting down and they have to bring you back to life or not. They rushed her to the intensive care unit, removed the drip, and 20 minutes later she was better. The same thing happened to another patient, Fred Belf, right around the same time. By the next day, they figured out there was insulin in the IV ooh, bags, ooh, ooh. and someone noticed the bags also had tiny needle sticks in hmm. them. A check back through records found out that there had been an abnormal amount of patients crashing with no obvious cause. It was happening regularly. It was happening in the intensive care unit, the critical care unit, and the burn unit. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't confined to one shift or one unit. Lab tests on some of the patients with super high insulin also found that the insulin was foreign, not produced by their own bodies. Your your body produces insulin, and insulin they give you if you're diabetic or whatever They can tell the difference. Yes. The hospital wondered if it was a mistake, but there was nothing on the chart showing the patients had been given insulin. So that would have made it a double mistake, that somebody accidentally gave them insulin when they weren't supposed to and also didn't chart it. And nurses and doctors chart everything a patient is given. And it happened over and over again. So, uh, mistake? (laughs) The head of security, Joe Barry, a former major in the New Jersey State Police, started an investigation. He checked schedules and other things and narrowed it down to three nurses, including Charlie. Two of the nurses, when Barry talked to them, were scared and nervous for their jobs. And Barry considered that normal. Yeah. 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 Charlie was actually employed by a staffing service, service owned by the hospital, not the hospital itself, and his shifts were all over the place. So Barry had um, trouble running him down, and that'll come up later okay. too. Okay, so he was like a fill-in or floater. Well, or no, he had, he was full time. He worked like seventy or eighty hours a week. Yeah, but he. But they used a staffing service to. to yeah, I person. mean, he wasn't assigned to one place. Well, he yeah, he was assigned to the burn unit. Oh, he okay, never mind. Yeah, sorry. But when he finally was able to talk to Charlie, Charlie didn't seem to care or be nervous at all. He was also difficult, wouldn't answer a lot of questions and finally told Barry, "You can't prove anything." Hmm. And since Barry was a former New Jersey State Trooper, they were those were all huge red flags to him. And also them. probably a nice challenge to him like, yeah. "Oh, I can't can oh, I?" "Oh, can I write." Can't, can't I? But remember, this was only 1987. I mean, no, this was 1991, so It's true they didn't have a smoking gun, and the timelines and everything else were hard to nail down Mm. because of his shifts, and the people who got sick weren't necessarily even in Charlie's unit. There were several deaths that they thought were suspicious, but no way to connect them to anyone. Mm. On March 5th, 1991, the security guys at the hospital met with Livingston, New Jersey, Police Chief Don Jones, and told him there were probably homicides at the hospital. Mm. And they had evidence, and they had a suspect. But it was going to be hard to prove. Jones didn't want to touch it. He said the evidence wasn't that great and let the hospital deal with it. And one of the things over and over, too, is a lot of the people who died were sick people. And for people who weren't in the medical profession or weren't directly connected to these people, it's hard. And I'm not excusing what happens over the next 14 years or so here. But I think it's hard for people to get their heads around, hey, these people were dying. So how do you know they didn't die from the thing they were dying from? But, it, like I said, Jones didn't want to touch it. The hospital installed video stop-action cameras. Remember, this was 1991. Video um, technology wasn't mm-hmm. what it is now. It interviewed staff, doctors, families. It instituted a new drug sign-out protocol for insulin. And still, by October, there were two more suspicious deaths. Late that year, they stopped calling Charlie and for shifts, and the problem stopped. Hmm. Later, Charlie would tell Graber, the guy who wrote The Good Nurse... He was spiking the bags randomly, and he never wore gloves. He'd been expecting them to fingerprint the bags and catch them that way, but they didn't. Charlie told Adrian the hospital had a vendetta against him, and that's why they were going after him for the insulin ODs. He applied for a job at Warren Hospital in New Jersey. He gave St. Barnabas as a reference and put his, his dates of work there as May 1987 to January 1992. And this was January 1992... He left in late December, but he put January 1992 as yeah, his... it yeah, a little bit. Yeah, he fudged He told the person who interviewed him that he was tired of the commute to St. Barnabas, which was about 40 minutes away from their house, and Warren was 20 minutes closer to home. On his reference, he said it was okay to contact St. Barnabas, for a reference. He was hired two weeks after he left St. Barnabas at Warren Hospital, Hospital 2. Okay. Adrian was suspicious of Charlie's story about why he was let go at St. Barnabas, but then when he was hired at Warren, she began to doubt herself and her suspicions of him, thinking, you know, he was a union member, he had to get recertified as a nurse, you know, regularly. There were yeah. state boards that governed his job, and Graber writes, it was inconceivable that at Incon- an in- Sorry. It, was in- it was inconceivable that at an institution entrusted with human lives, the staff weren't at least as carefully regulated as the stocks of morphine. She figured everything was okay. Otherwise, they wouldn't have hired him at war, Yeah, right? that's what I was saying. I mean, why would he have gotten another job? Right. Yeah, well, you'll see. They'd had their second daughter in December 1991, Ugh. just as he was being let go at St. Barnabas. So I guess their marriage wasn't that bad. Well, they had sex. His drinking Ugh. was getting way out of hand, and he had obvious depression, but refused to do anything about mm-hmm. it. His behavior was getting more bizarre and dangerous at home too. He'd do things like flop on the living room floor right before she came in, spilling pills all around himself, so it looked like he'd overdose. But she ignored him. And I always <laughs> wonder too. Like she, there was one point where she stepped over him to go get a magazine and then stepped back over him and then. Well, and, I, but the thing is, I always thought this like on TV shows too. Why scatter the pills around? Because then obviously you didn't take them. They're it scattered is. around. But I was going to say too about you, when you're in in a situation where somebody is gradually deteriorating. I think that a lot of times you don't realize it when you're the. little right. I mean, you realize it, but you you accept things. You just keep accepting things. Right. As and they also, come along and, right. And You just don't want to deal with it. Right. And also, and we can talk about it more later too. That even nowadays in 2018, so like. 20-plus <laughs> years after, however many years after this, if somebody isn't beating the shit out of somebody and there isn't physical evidence, people don't see other things as problems or red flags. Yes. So, in any case, in November 1992, Adrian contacted a lawyer about a divorce. She had to have gallbladder surgery, an outpatient thing, and it was at Warren, the same hospital where Charlie worked. Hmm. She didn't want to go in there for surgery without it being clear she'd filed for divorce. She wanted to protect herself. From what? Who knows? Hmm. So she had papers served to him at work in the ICU while she was having the surgery. She had her father bring her in, wait for her, and bring her home. But what? What was her reason? I think if something happened to her, she wanted it to be clear that she was getting a divorce. I'm not really totally sure, but so he wouldn't have control over Oh, I get over it. Oh, so, yeah, because I was, okay, that makes sense. Or, or, uh, or to protect it. herself, okay, yes. like if he knew she had filed for divorce, he'd be less likely to do, to mess with um, Well, I was thinking, he... yeah, that's true. Okay. But in any that case, makes sense. but yeah. she also felt bad for Charlie. Fuck him. And they agreed he could stay in the house until they could figure out the divorce no, details. That's never a good idea. Well, she regretted it pretty quickly. One night in January 1993, so this was a few months later, she finally called the police on him. But when they got there, she had trouble telling them exactly what the problem was. And this was the kind of thing I was talking about a few minutes ago, where people back then and even now don't recognize things that aren't just physical battering. Just that she felt Charlie was dangerous and she was afraid of him. She told them about the hospital investigation at St. Barnabas, about Queenie, the beagle who got was poisoned. How he'd once bragged about putting lighter fluid in the drink of one of his sister's boyfriends. Yeah. All the fake suicide attempts. She told them about the missing puppy and about how every pet, goldfish, ferrets, hamsters, were tortured, <laughs> disappeared, or died. Ah. She'd had a dog, Lady, when they first met, a Yorkie, and Charlie would keep it chained in the backyard, and it would bark and get tangled around the pole until animal welfare finally took it away. She Aww. had to go and beg for the dog back. okay. I just need to break in. That would have been a jailbreaker, be. right? Me. Yep. They kept her inside, and in the basement where Charlie would go to drink, and she'd hear thumps and yelping and weird noises. <gasps> and Charlie would tell her he was training lady, and he said, "Doesn't sound like you're training her. Cut it out," and the noise would stop. Okay, I don't like the victim blame, but not the doggy. The Adrian. There are many women in situations with guys who are. Who It, it, did not it is very no, difficult, as people know, to leave somebody no matter what. I it, know. Issues I where other people say, and he wasn't beating her. I know. I know. And that seems to be the gold standard. If somebody's beating you, people will support you leaving somebody. If somebody isn't beating you, it, people mm-hmm. tell you to stick it out, especially when you have two babies. I know, that's true. Charlie was pissed he would call the cops. He didn't consider himself a wife beater, so he didn't think it was necessary to call the cops on him. And so he took 20 pills and a bottle of wine and was taken to the hospital. While he was in the ICU, a fellow nurse, Michelle Tomlinson, came to visit him, and they had a good rapport. She thought he was funny, charming, self-deprecating. She was depressed, and she thought they had some things in common. She was a single mother going through a divorce and had an on-again, off-again boyfriend. And she suggested to Charlie he get himself transferred to Muhlenberg, a psychiatric hospital right over the state line in Pennsylvania. And he managed to do that, and once there, she would visit him and bring him flowers and stuff. After he got on a Muhlenberg and the divorce was finalized, he moved into a basement apartment across town in Phillipsburg from Adrian and the kids. And back at work, he started spending a lot of time with Michelle, and they'd commiserate about their lives. When she broke up with her boyfriend, she agreed to go on a date with Charlie. It sounds like she wasn't totally enthusiastic, but she figured what harm. Could one date do. On the date, which she intended to be a one-time thing, she had a brownie Sunday. Charlie figured she must like brownies. And no. he started leaving them for her at work. He'd leave oh, them would, on her chart. Yep. She'd leave, he'd leave them on the counter. But she ignored them. So he, How can you ignore a brownie? I know, no matter who w- gave it to you. Well... It, okay. Maybe that's the one smart thing she did. <laughs> he'd even go in on his days off to talk to her and bring her brownies, but she'd ignore him. So he turned it up a notch. He figured he wasn't trying hard enough, ah. and he would follow her on on her shifts, talking to her. And he finally brought in a ring and told her he loved her. <sighs> she got away from him and avoided him for the rest of the shift. And he tried calling her house after, but kept getting her machine. And she lived about 40 minutes away from him. Uh, he called over and over and over again for several hours. And her boyfriend finally called him back and told him he was upsetting Michelle and to cut it out. In fact, Jerry, the boyfriend, told Charlie that Michelle was hysterical. So Charlie figured something was really wrong. He knew Michelle had depression and figured if she was hysterical, she must be having some kind of breakdown and um, was suicidal or something. Oh, jeez. So he drove the 40 minutes to her condo. The lights were on and her car was there, but she didn't answer when he knocked on the door. So we went home and called her again. (coughs) And she didn't answer, so he, after calling several times, he drove back, and he kept doing that. Her car was there. She must be home, but she's not answering, so he'd go back, call oh, her, because this was in the days, you know, before cell phones. Yeah. And finally, he decided something must be wrong, and oh, he no. broke into her apartment. No, no, no. He went into her room, and she was just in there sleeping. So he left and sat in his car until morning and then called her from a pay phone, and she actually answered this time, and she said she was freaked out because someone had broken into her apartment, and he admitted that he's the one who had done it because he was worried about her and wanted to make sure she was okay, and she seemed a little upset by that. Mm-hmm. And Ooh, so he said he'd wrong? understand if she wanted to call the cops, although he didn't really think she would, but he went home, and the police called and asked him to come down to the oh, station. Oh, no. But before he left, he took some Xanax and Darvocet, figuring they'd book him, he'd be in a cell. Then he would get really sick from this suicide attempt, and they'd have to bring him to the hospital, and they'd feel bad for him. But the problem is they booked him, but then let him go on his own (laughs) recognizance. So he drove to a payphone, and he couldn't think of who to call. He couldn't call Michelle. He didn't want to call his ex-wife because she'd be pissed off. So he called his kid's babysitter and said he'd OD'd, and she called an ambulance Mm -hmm. to come get him. Oh, God. And once again, he was institutionalized, but this time at Greystone, um, New Jersey State. Uh, psychiatric hospital after he'd been there a while he got a call from warren hospital and he figured it was to fire him but they just wanted to know when he'd be available for work <laughs> and he was transferred when he got back to telemetry which is for cardiac patients to uh, monitor and usually after surgery to monitor oh. their hearts. and a lot of the equipment is very similar to polygraph equipment it's oh, yeah, yeah. You see those a little. Michelle bit. had a restraining order against him and worked in, still worked in ICU oh, or CCU or whatever. He'd been charged with stalking, breaking, and entering, trespassing, and harassment. Charlie wasn't known for his bedside manner, and he liked describing in graphic detail to a patient their condition <laughs> and also to oh, their families and describing Horrible. what their chance for death was <laughs> nice. in just clinical terms. <laughs> And in telemetry, he got to go into great detail explaining to the patients about the monitors and the beeping and what they measured and how they worked. And as I said, one of the main monitors was the electrocardiogram, the same machine that's used in lie detector tests. And Charlie knew how lie detectors worked. He had to take two for his divorce. Adrian had said he was too much of a drunk to be around the kids and had also gotten a restraining order against him. So that's two restraining orders against the guy. And he he offered to take a polygraph to show he could be around his kids, and he passed it. She had applied for a restraining order. It was still granted, even though he passed his polygraph. Mm. And he also had his criminal case, the one against Michelle, and he was going to represent himself, oh. which he did in the divorce. <laughs> but then he realized he was in over his head. He picked a lawyer out of the phone book, but the lawyer quit after three days, saying he was too difficult. Yeah. He wrote a long ranting letter to the court complaining, but it did no good. He pleaded guilty to harassment and defiant trespass and was given a fine and probation hmm. and had a record. Then he tried he still was a nur- he was still allowed to be a nurse. Mm-hmm. Even if, yeah. Yes, he was. Okay. Let's just make that the default. <laughs> that through everything I tell you about he was he still, still allowed to a be a He still had a job well, until you know, I tell you he doesn't. Your, but your medical background he can always get a job. But when he went home from pleading guilty, he took pills and wine, mm. drove himself to Warren Hospital, and admitted himself oh to the Oh my fucking room. God! How many fucking times? Many. Well, he liked Jesus. the attention. People had right. to take care of him and give him attention. Ugh. The court-appointed family services counselor noted in Charlie's file that his constant suicide attempts were, quote, the most severe and ultimate form of abuse, neglect, rejection, and abandonment one can inflict on one's children. Charlie Graber, Charles Graber, who wrote the book, The Good Nurse, wrote that Charlie had no control over his life outside of the hospital, but he could control things inside. On September 1st, 1993, Helen Dean was recovering from breast cancer surgery. She was in a room with her adult son, Larry. When Charlie came in, kicked Larry out. When Larry came back, Charlie was gone, and he'd never seen Charlie before. He didn't know who he was. But his mother angrily said Charlie had stuck her, and she showed her son a needle mark on the inside of her thigh. Larry told the doctor, but the doctor said it could be a bug bite. So I guess Helen wasn't to be believed, apparently. I don't doctor. know. doctor. Right. But the next day, she was violently, violently ill, and then she died. Uh. Larry complained to his mother's oncologist, who said she hadn't been scheduled for any injections. Mm-hmm. He called the Warren County prosecutor, and he said his mother had been murdered, and he knew who did it. Uh. And let's remember, you know, 1993. Okay. And it's Charlie's second hospital, so he has ten years nah. and seven hospitals oh. to go. Oh, many. oh, nine. That's right. Died. Yeah. nine. When Charlie went into work the next day, he was questioned by a number of people, the doctors, administrators, people from the Prosecutor's Crime Investigation Office, and Helen Dean's body was tested for nearly a 100 potentially lethal chemicals, but not digoxin. Did Jackson? Did Jackson a medicine that slows the heart. And which is what Charlie had inde- injected her with. Aww. Her death was determined to be of natural causes. What? He was put Oh, because on... they didn't test. Sorry, never mind. Yeah, because they didn't test. They tested for nearly a 100 things, but didn't test for the thing he killed her with. Smart. He was put on indefinite paid leave, effective immediately. So when he went home, he took some pills. I wish I was put on indefinite paid leave. I know. Leave. Well, you'd think he would have enjoyed it. But instead, he went home, took some pills, and called the ambulance. Oh, my God. What a drama! After he got out of the after they released him from the emergency room for that, he was interviewed again by the prosecutor's office, which gave him a polygraph. And remember, he worked in telemetry, and he knew how certain drugs could change what a polygraph mm-hmm. showed. And he passed with flying colors. Of course, he did. But he decided he didn't want to work at Warren anymore, so he found a new job at Hunterdon Hospital in Flemington, New Jersey. That's Hospital Three. Okay. He he gave both Warren and Saint Barnabas as references. <laughs> Huntenden never called St. Barnabas. Mm-hmm. Warham vouched for him, including his supervisor and the ICU nursing manager, both of whom had positive things to say. The ICU manager said he left the hospital for personal reasons. His October 1995 performance report at Huntenden calls him a patient advocate and said he cares about his patient's welfare, is organized, giving him his time, bright, witty, and intelligent. By this time, he was dating another nurse, Kathy who was unhappily married with three kids. Mm. He had also at the hospital received grace under pressure accommodations for filling in on extra shifts and being positive, polite, and helpful. Oh, how nice of him. also said he had no medication errors. But things had started go downhill for Charlie. He started getting reprimands and write-ups for things like over-lubricating patients, which he did with the blinds drawn. I guess nurses put moisturizer on patients, which I didn't realize... And Charlie would use way too much, and this follows him throughout his career. He would just move him right out down. on me. Yeah. Well, I, that's he, a weird thing. Well, I, I don't know enough about it. He had compulsions. Nurses, please tell us. But I think he had compulsions. I liked it when a nurse rubbed lotion mm, on me. Yeah, I wouldn't like that. He also was caught giving unprescribed drugs to some patients while not giving other drugs that have been prescribed to patients mm. to them. Whenever he gave a patient the wrong drug, he also didn't put it on the chart, which means he was intentionally doing yes. it. Yes, yes. He was also ordering lab tests, something only doctors were allowed to do. On July 9th, Jesse Eichen, at least the sixth person he'd killed at Huntington, died from a dose of digoxin. Kathy, Charlie's girlfriend, had gone back to her husband a few days before. Ten days later, his supervisor told him one more incident of the weird stuff, and he'd be terminated. They weren't talking about him killing people oh, because okay. they didn't know he was the lubing killing people. And stuff. Well, the lubing, the unprescribed drugs to people, the lab tests, the not giving people the drugs. Yes, you would think those would be serious things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll get more yeah. into why hospitals do what they do later. But Charlie told her if they felt that way, he'd just quit. <laughs> so he slammed out and went home and typed a lengthy letter full of all caps and multiple explanation oh, points and question marks. He told them they could keep the 170 hours of vacation he'd accumulated because of perfect attendance, and he mailed it. And the hospital was happy to get his resignation. I bet. They told him he could still work per diem shifts, and they even scheduled them for somebody who never showed up. They tried calling him, but he didn't answer, and they finally sent him a termination letter. He wrote another letter to the hospital saying he'd heard he'd been referred to by somebody there as unstable, and if he is was, why was he allowed to keep working? But they never wrote back and answered that. <laughs> In October 1996, he started working at Morristown Memorial Hospital. The HR department used a professional service to check him out. Hunterdon and Warren both confirmed he'd been employed by them. The staffing agency owned by St. Barnabas said they could vouch for him being employed there from 1990. He'd started in 1987, but there must have been something going on with the files. But they couldn't find his personnel file. The service noted discrepancies in his start and leave dates, but Morristown didn't see that as a big issue, when they hired him. They were short-staffed, and he was happy to work 75 hours a week at 2327 an hour. That was in 1996, yeah. I take it. Yeah. In the cardiac care unit, Hospital 4. Yeah. Craver writes, Charlie was still reeling and failed to give one of his better nursing performances at Morristown. The morning ship would arrive to find Charlie's patients cowering in pools of their own blood, 25 washcloths ah. in the sink, and junk all over the counter. And so they wrote, a, they wrote him up in incident reports, but Charlie thought they were being petty, the nurses who came out and found the mess he had left. One patient actually told Charlie's supervisor that he wanted to call the police, but all they did was lecture Charlie. They also thought he was careless with drugs and several times had loaded patients with the wrong doses of the sedative Dipravan or with heparin. Charlie thinks he may have killed one or two patients at the hospital before he was fired nine months after he started there. And I think Charlie, in a lot of cases, under, you know, under... The final straw for the hospital was that he was supposed to administer heparin to a patient and didn't, and the patient died. While the death wasn't directly linked to the non-dose of heparin, his actions were called inexcusable by bosses, and he was sent home for a week. He, oh. was, he was fired for poor performance and nurse practice issues. He wrote a lengthy letter asking for a review, and they concluded he'd been terminated appropriately. He wanted a termination review. He called 911 told the ambulance he'd taken pills. Oh, they took him to the emergency room, and then he went back to Greystone, the psychiatric hospital. Oh. When he got out in December, he went to the police to press charges against Warren, um, where he'd been taken after a suicide attempt at the hospital he had worked at before. That's where he always went for his suicide attempts, because it was in the town he lived in. A oh. doctor had tried to take do a blood test on him, and he wouldn't let the doctor. So when he got out of Greystone, he went to the police to press charges because the doctor had tried to do a blood test and he considered it an assault. That's kind of um, rich coming from him. Yeah, well, the police took his information. I don't think the charges went anywhere. But he kind of burned some bridges in New Jersey, so he (laughs) crossed the state line into Pennsylvania to apply for his next job at Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation in Allentown. He needed a different nursing license for Pennsylvania, but uh, only required filling out an application. For references, Morristown confirmed his employment. That was the last place he had worked. The Huntington supervisor who had threatened to fire Charlie for multiple medication and patient care issues said he was an excellent nurse, gave good care, and was excellent with patients, and she'd recommend him for employment. (laughs) Charlie was $66,000 in debt with credit cards, alimony, and child support, and so he started at Hospital 5. So, I wonder I mean, okay, he was a drunk, but like, he worked so much, when did he have time to spend the money? I mean... When he worked at Morris, like you said, he was working 75 hours a week, making 20, you know, 20 yeah, hours know. an hour. I don't know. It makes you wonder. I don't know. On May 6, 1998, he injected Francis Henry, who had a broken vertebra and was in a, one of those halo things, with insulin right into his IV. Ugh. Francis Henry went into diabetic shock and violent seizures, then a coma, and died two days later. Charlie filed for bankruptcy a few days after that. Liberty found massive amounts of foreign insulin in Henry's blood. He hadn't been prescribed insulin. His charts didn't show anyone had administered insulin. Charlie already had a few write-ups. He figured he was going to get fired. Instead, they fired a senior nurse, Kimberly Peep. Her lawyers filed a wrongful termination suit and said Charlie was the more likely person and even said Liberty knew that too. Peep had been asked about Henry's death and they indicated to her at the hospital at the time, that they were looking at Charlie. Liberty denied that, and there was no criminal investigation, even though it was obvious Henry had been poisoned. In a 2002 background investigation into Charlie four years later by the Pennsylvania State Nursing Board, Liberty's nursing director said no missing drugs or unexplained deaths occurred while Charlie worked at that place. In any case, Charlie was moved out of ICU to the psych wing, in one incident, he ejected a woman who wasn't his patient with drugs and a scuffle ensued in which her wrist was broken. Charlie was fired five months after Henry's death for failure to follow a drug protocol. Two days later, the staffing agency Health Force got him a job at Easton Hospital in Easton, Pennsylvania. They needed him for overnights in the ICU. So that's hospital... five On January 2nd, 1999, Christina Toff got a call from her father's doctor saying an unknown person at the hospital at Easton Hospital, had ordered blood tests on her father that showed he had levels of digoxin in his blood that were off the chart. And digoxin is a heart medication that affects the rhythm of the heart. If you need it, it helps, but if you don't need it, it can kill you. Her father, Otto Schramm, was in the hospital after suffering a stroke and hadn't been prescribed digoxin. The doctor said he'd call back when he knew more after follow-up tests. When he called back, it was to tell Christina that Otto was dead. (laughs) He urged her, the doctor did, to say yes when they asked if she wanted an autopsy. When she was in her father's room viewing his body, Charlie came in and asked if they wanted an autopsy, and she said yes. He seemed annoyed and said, why would he want an autopsy? Her father hadn't wanted extraordinary measures, and an autopsy would be even more intrusive, he told her. She didn't know what to say, and he left the room. Another nurse came in and asked if she wasn't wanted an autopsy, and she said she wasn't sure. Oh, then a third nurse came in and asked, and she was getting really annoyed by everybody who kept asking, and she said yes. And she started telling the nurse someone had given her father an overdose, and the nurse said, I wouldn't say anything more. The county coroner determined Otto Schramm's death was accidental, based on the forensic pathologist's finding that he had died of pneumonia with digoxin overdose as a contributing factor. The coroner still thought it was suspicious, though, and investigated for eight months. He knew about a man who seemed suspicious, who Christina thought was a nurse, but she didn't know his name. He couldn't take it any further, the coroner. Three years later, in 2002, he got an anonymous tip that the mystery nurse was Charlie, and he might have had some involvement in Otto's death, and the coroner called the state police. So, three years after this. He also called Easton Hospital about Charlie's records, but they told him they could find no record of Charlie working there. And this, again, was three years later. I'm kind of skipping ahead for a second. Since he was hired through a staffing agency, the hospital didn't have his records. Oh, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Charlie hadn't liked working at Easton anyway, and by March 1999, when questions began to circulate about SRAM, he was working in the burn unit at Lehigh Valley Hospital down the road. Hospital 6. Yeah. At the hospital, he was first introduced to the new Pixis drug dispenser machine. It was like an ATM for drugs. You punched in on keys what drug you wanted, and the drawer opened. There were a bunch of drawers with different drugs in them. Uh I guess I took the drug out. He didn't like the way the other nurses there treated him, though. Then he got back at them by making sure patients coded right in front of them. He later told police he thought he killed four or five there, but they could only tie two to him directly. Matt Maddern, 22, who died on August 31st, 1999 and Stella Danielsik, 73, on February 26, 2000. Mattern had burns over most of his body after a car wreck. By the rule of nines, remember that? He was 92% dead. Charlie had loaded his IV with a triple dose of digoxin. Charlie found that deaths relieved stress. It was a compulsion and didn't have to do with the patients themselves, Graber wrote. In fact, he failed to notice the patients at all, only the outcomes. But by fall, it wasn't working for him as a stress reliever. He bought too many hibachis and lit them in his bathtub, poured a drink, and sat in the bathroom and waited. His landlady called 911 because of the smell, and the cop knocked at the door, and Charlie answered, and the cop wanted Charlie to let him in, and at first Charlie didn't want him to, but then he did, and the cop went in. Charlie had crammed towels into the air ducts, the heating ducts in the house and stuff, the cop called, and, and, you know, the cop saw the hibachis burning in the bathtub. Charlie put him in the bathtub because he didn't want to burn the apartment house down. Oh, that's nice and of him. The cop called an ambulance. So he was trying to make himself die of smoke inhalation? Carbon, carbon dioxide, probably. Oh, yeah. And the cop called an ambulance. They took him to the hospital, and he was fine. And But things weren't going well at Lehigh, and by April 2000, Charlie was looking for a new job. He got a $5,000 signing bonus at St. Luke's, which was ranked by U.S. News and World Report as one of the country's best medical facilities. Hospital 7. All right. Charlie was odd. For one thing, at the beginning of his shift, he'd take several chairs from the nurse's station and hide them in offices or empty rooms, despite the fact his supervisor told him to stop. And that thing kind of reminds me of some people I've worked with before. What? Just doing weird things. He just did it. It was either a compulsion or he did it to fuck with people. He liked kind of getting back at people by oh, yeah. doing things that annoyed him. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He seemed to use way too much lotion on the patients <laughs> to the point he was constantly spoken about it by his supervisor. That's, that's just one of the weirdest things. Like. I know. I, well, he had compulsive behavior. There seemed to be a lot more codes in the unit. Nobody was tying him to Charlie right then, though. By spring, they also noticed meds were missing. One they hardly ever used, Pernestil kept disappearing. Charlie had been throwing it away. He didn't like St. Luke's and was sending a message. It was an expensive drug. In June 2002, a nurse discovered in the sharps container, you know, where you threw mm-hmm. new, used needles and stuff. In the storage room, it was full of drugs boxes. And the storage room is where they drew IVs and did, did some of their drug stuff. And they found six bottles of Vic- vecuronium bromide and some other stuff and 40 boxes of the misting pernestyl. The VEC bottles were empty, and that's a powerful paralytic. Overdoses would be like drowning or slow suffocation, yeah. Charlie Graber wrote. Charles Graber. i got to stop calling him Charlie. The musculature shuts down, but the person inside stays Ugh. intact until oh the heart God and lungs horrible. fail. It keeps you from moving or screaming, but not from feeling pain. It doesn't use that often. The two nurses who found the boxes figured it was Charlie doing it after they kept an eye on the storage room all day, and he was the only one who went in and closed the door behind him. Everybody else would prop the door open or do other things. It had been a night shift, so they waited until the next day to tell the supervisor. By then, more empty bottles were in there, and Edward O'Toole had coded the night before, a victim of the drugs. Charlie wasn't working that day, and the sharps container stayed empty of bottles and boxes. The investigative wheels at St. Luke's were in motion, including risk management, other administrators, and the county prosecutor's office. Charlie was questioned and realized even though they had no evidence, they had him in their sights. If he resigned, they told him they'd give him neutral references. He was escorted out of the hospital by security. Three days later, he was working at Sacred Heart Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Hospital 8. St. Luke's gave him neutral references Mm. for Sacred Heart, despite the issues he'd had there. Still, two weeks later, he was asked not to come back. He didn't last long at wow. Sacred Heart. The cause for termination said, quote, interpersonal conflicts, unquote. It turns out one of the nurses used to work at Easton, where Charlie had killed Otto Schram, and she'd heard the stories about him. She told her co-workers, and they petitioned the administration and said they'd all quit if he wasn't fired. Wow. But, although no one had told Charlie that. He'd already found a new girlfriend, Kathy Westfurr who he moved in with in her house in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The St. Luke's references were still neutral. They hadn't been able to turn up any suspicious deaths related to the empty bottles or anything else he'd done. Despite that, in August 2002, Charles Saunders, a St. Luke's vice president, started calling other Bethlehem-area hospitals, asking if they had unusual incidents with a nurse named Charlie Cullen, and saying not to hire him. Whoa. St. Luke's vice president and former St. Barnabas president, Vince Joseph, And Paul Laughlin, the St. Luke's attorney, involved in the investigation of Charlie, were also calling colleagues and telling them to watch out for Charlie. None of them called Somerset Medical Center in Somerset, New Jersey, though. Charlie had worked for five hospitals and four years in Pennsylvania. It was time to go back to New Jersey, where, yeah, he'd also had issues, but it had been four years. Hmm. It was August 2002 when he applied. He said no to the application question asking if he had any criminal convictions. He said he'd work any shift, any unit, though he liked critical care. He'd work holidays, <laughs> the weekends. Sicker the better. Yeah, that's right. He'd work holidays, weekends, on call. Weekends were a little new for him. When he had custody of his kids, or shared custody of his kids, he made sure he had weekends free. But once he moved in with Kathy, he seemed to lose interest in his kids and even avoided spending time with them. Oh, weird. You know, lucky for them, I guess. Yeah. Warren Hospital, I think that had been hospital number two. I've kind of lost track. Confirmed Charlie had worked there and his former supervisor extolled his work ethic, conscientiousness, and intelligence. St. Luke's confirmed his employment and gave him the promised neutral references. He was listed as do not rehire at St. Luke's, but when Somerset asked about whether he'd be rehired, they didn't answer because of the neutral references thing. They later testified that since the evidence against Charlie was circumstantial, they didn't want to hurt his ability to get another job. In September 2002, Charlie started work full-time in the Somerset Medical Center Critical Care Unit, Hospital Number 9. Charlie's co-workers liked him because he was so efficient. He got right to work and always helped with the Pixis drug dispensary machine, getting IVs ready at the beginning of the night. They had to line up all the IVs and get them ready. He also made a couple of friends, Amy Lowren and Donna Scotty. People called them the Three Musketeers. Mm. Like his friends before, they liked his self-deprecating sense of humor. He'd tell funny stories about his crappy childhood or his misadventures in the Navy. He'd talk honestly about his depression, his bad luck, being abused and bullied. They liked his honesty. And Amy, like some before, felt a maternal pull that Charlie needed to be taken care of. He wore cardigans, he had sad eyes, you know, he seemed kind of like a lost soul to people, Mm -hmm. I guess. Amy also suffered from depression. She was a single mother who put herself through nursing school. She'd had bad luck with boyfriends, and she even had panic attacks, but Charlie made her feel safe. They weren't a romantic couple, but they were good close friends. I kind of look at it as, you know, how people talk about having work wives and work husbands. It was kind of one of those deals. She also liked how serious he was about his job, because she was too. She thought of him as a good nurse who cared the way she did. Hmm. She thought it was funny, though, the way he over-moisturized his patients. (laughs) She called them his butterball turkeys. Oh, my God. That was so weird. I know. He also was constantly on his Cerner machine. This was a computerized charting system that each nurse had, and I think it had wheels on it so you could roll it down. It's like a little computer on wheels, and that's how they charter their patients. Oh, yeah. And he was on it all the time. She used to joke that he was writing a novel on it or something. She liked to listen to his funny stories about how his girlfriend Kathy frequently tried to kick him out and he wouldn't leave. (laughs) She called it the Charlie and Kathy show. (laughs) Oh, isn't that cute? He'd finish his duties quickly. He was very efficient, and he'd help Amy out. She always had trouble getting things done on time, and he was very helpful. She also had a heart condition that she didn't want her bosses to know about, but she told Charlie... But then she got sick and started having trouble at work. She eventually collapsed and would need a pacemaker and a leave of absence. And he didn't have anything to do with that. But he was all alone at work because she was out sick. He was all alone on the night shift. Aww. And he thinks it was around then that he started doing patients at Somerset. As Graber wrote, he replaced Amy's attentions with his compulsions. Mm. His co-workers, like those at the other hospitals, thought he was a code genius, able to quickly diagnose someone who was coding and what drug they would need to reverse the code. He's not sure how many he did, but some are memorable. On January 14th, he killed Eleanor Stoker, 60, with a digoxin overdose. Two weeks later, the night of his 43rd birthday, he mixed Pavulon, a strong paralytic, with other drugs. He's not sure how many patients it hit. He injected them into IV bags but it was likely Joyce Mangini and Giacomo Toto. He killed John Channinger with norepinephrine on March 11th. In May, it was Dorothea Hoagland. Michael Stenko, 21, who had a genetic autoimmune disease, wasn't doing well on the unit around the time Amy came back from pacemaker surgery. She was worried he wouldn't make it. She was very worried about him, and he didn't make it. Uh But he was killed by digoxin or epinephrine or a combination. He coded several times before he died. After the second code, Charlie told his mother in, quote, a graphic and technically accurate word picture, unquote, of what was going on inside her son's body and what they were doing to save him. People don't always make it, he told her. Michael's mother finally had to tell him that's enough and to stop because he was being so graphic. Michael died in the early morning of May 15th. Amy had a habit I could identify with. She wanted to know why a Mm -hmm. lot. She was particularly annoyed by a new drug sign-out protocol for insulin. It was a pain in the ass and didn't seem to make sense. She got in an argument with her manager about it, and her manager finally said, just sign it, the whole thing isn't about you anyway. And she wanted to know who it was about, and her supervisor wanted to tell her. But she didn't connect it at the time with the huge amount of codes on the ward, which seemed to be extraordinarily high. In June 2003, Charlie zeroed in on someone he described later as, quote, the Oriental Lady. He didn't know or remember her name. It was Jin Kung Han, who was suffering from Hodgkin's lymphoma and cardiac disease. Her doctor originally prescribed digoxin, but it didn't work that well for her, and he worried that with her condition it could kill her, so he took her off it. At 7.30 one night, Charlie put an order for digoxin in for one of his patients. Mrs. Han was someone else's patient. And then he canceled the order. He put it in the Pixis. He typed it in. When you put an order and a cancel, the drawer opens anyway. Ah. He took out some digoxin, and in the early hours of the morning, shortly before his shift was to end, he went into Mrs. Hahn's room, injected it into her IV line. It was a dose eight times bigger than any Ugh. dose she'd had before. He was surprised when he came back to work that night that she was still there. Her heart rate had plummeted, her chart showed, but her doctor had ordered an antidote, and she'd rallied. But it happened again, and this time she died. Mm. Shortly after, the Reverend Florian Gow was admitted, seriously ill with kidney and heart disease and some other stuff. His sister, Lillian, a former senior nurse at another hospital, was at his side all the time and constantly questioning Charlie about the drugs he was giving her brother. Charlie didn't like it, and he didn't like her. Well. Yeah, but if he... You know, if he hadn't been injecting people with drugs, they yeah, did The Reverend Gall had been there a week and had a do not resuscitate order. But he started to get better and they rescinded the order. On the evening of June twenty eighth, he went into cardiac arrest. His blood work showed his digoxin level was off the charts. Gall had another name at the hospital, patient four. Mrs. Hahn was patient. This time <laughs> someone was paying more attention. Uh, well, that's good. Gall was the fourth death added to Aww. the list of suspicious deaths. But hospitals have a funny way of investigating things, or at least they did back then. Maybe things have changed. I don't know. In other words, slow and very deliberate. A nurse asked to meet with the risk manager, Mary Lund, after Gall's death, and Lund <laughs> called a meeting with Dr. William Coors, the hospital's medical director, as well as the COO, the chairman of pathology, the head of lab services, the director of pharmacy, the head of critical care cardiology, and several others. Whoa. At the meeting, they decided to check the Pyxis access on the unit for digoxin withdrawals around the time of Gall's death. They also decided the pharmacy should call poison control to find out how much digoxin would cause the serum level found in Gall's and Han's blood. The investigation was focusing on Gall and Han, particularly on canceled Pyxis orders around the time they Hmm. died. But there had been two other patients who died of insulin overdoses that they also had in mind, even though the investigation wasn't focusing on them. On July 7th, Nancy Doherty, who worked in the pharmacy and had been at the meeting, called New Jersey Poison Control. Hospitals, as I said, and as you've figured out by now, are very deliberate when investigating this type of thing. It's hard to say what the outcome would have been, maybe similar to those fledgling investigations at some of the other hospitals Charlie had worked at, if it hadn't been for this phone call. The pharmacist reluctantly told Bruce Ruck, the doctor at the other end of the line at Poison Control, that the patients who had taken the digoxin she was calling about had died. Ruck was alarmed. Two patients had died from having way too much digoxin in their systems on different nights on the same ward. The thing that really alarmed him was the fact that the patient's levels had spiked when they weren't being prescribed it. This is a big issue, he told Nancy. Before very nervous Nancy got off the phone, she confided that they were looking at two other patient deaths as well, two earlier ones. She didn't name them, but they were Joseph Lehman, who died on May 28th, and Francis Kane, who died on June 4th. Bruce said he'd call her back, and when he did, he told her the amount of digoxin they would need to get the serum levels she'd cited, and the fact that the body does not produce digoxin, it has to be introduced, so I was going to ask that, yeah, was concerning. He was also concerned about the two insulin ODs, but she cautioned him that he wasn't supposed to know about those, and the hospital, quote, wasn't looking at those now. Ruck said they had to. This is a police matter, he told her. Yes. He said it at least four times as the conversation went on and as Nancy fumbled through it. She was just a messenger, and now she was scared shitless that she'd caused the problem. Ruck wanted to go down and talk to administration, but Nancy said she'd do it. He told her to call back and let him know what happened. When he got off the phone, he went and told his boss, Dr. Steve Marcus, about the conversation. He had gotten about two sentences out with Marcus stopped him, immediately concluded someone at the hospital was knocking off patients. Those are Marcus's words. But no one from Somerset called them back. Finally, a day or two later, Ruck called the pharmacy, and Stuart Vigdor, the director of the pharmacy, answered. And by the way, another thing that probably saved the case and some lives is the fact that Poison Control tapes all its phone calls. Ah. Ruck asked what they'd decided, and Vigdor said it was in the administration's hands, that they'd called in the attorneys and told him not to talk to Poison Control. He said that they were invest- that the hospital was investigating and weren't going to call in authorities until after a thorough investigation. Steve Marcus, Bruce's boss, and the poison control director, repeatedly called the hospital until they agreed to do a conference call. He stressed in that conference call that someone was purposely overdosing patients, and now that poison control knew, they had a le- legal obligation to report it. He was very blunt telling them he didn't want to get caught with his pants down and referred to previous cases in Michigan and Long Island where hospitals hadn't acted or taken too long, quote, and they had someone going around doing inpatients. Apparently, the hospital administrators were all put off by his bluntness. He wasn't being very polite. Ruck brought up the insulin ODs, and apparently the hospital had already determined somebody had injected it, but they don't have direct evidence, and they're wrestling with (laughs) throwing the whole hospital into chaos versus our responsibility to keep patients from further harm. Coors, the medical director, said they were trying to investigate, but they needed more information before making a rush to judgment. Marcus pointed out that every single time something like this has happened, the hospital has delayed and more lives were lost. On the 60 Minutes story about this, when Charles Graver's books came out, Steve Marcus said at least five deaths occurred between this phone call and the time oh, wow. Charlie was finally arrested. Well, That know. they know of. Yeah. He also pointed out, in that phone call, doctors were notoriously bad at doing forensic investigation. Coors, the medical director, asked who was good at forensic investigation. The police, Marcus said. <laughs> this is a police matter, Rock said. He'd been saying it over and over for the past two days. Marcus said, I mean, if you don't report it to the police and someone else dies, and it comes up you stonewalled it, you're going to really look terrible. Coors chuckles at this and says, we're looking at protecting patients. And Marcus points out he is, too. But I'm also concerned that we're all going to get caught with our pants down and we'll all look like morons. Marcus had experience with this, and every time it followed the same pattern. Doctors treated it like a disease to be studied, Graber wrote. The administration and lawyers got concerned about lawsuits, Mm -hmm. and the institution dragged its feet and more people died. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the hospital didn't hang up with Marcus and then call the cops. Marcus also told them it was a sentinel event. In a sentinel event is when you have to report. New Jersey state regulations require hospitals to notify the Department of Health of anything occurring within the hospital that jeopardizes patients immediately. And the cause doesn't have to be known to make the notification. Marcus had another phone call with the hospital again a day or two later, pushing them to report it. They said again that until they did a thorough investigation, they weren't reporting anything. And when they did, it would be to the Department of Health, not to the police. Coors, the medical director, thought Marcus was rude and confrontational. Mm. Marcus told them again it was a police matter, and if they didn't report it in 24 hours, he would. Earlier that day, he'd called the state epidemiologist at the Department of Health and told him that there were a cluster of illnesses at the hospital that may be based on a criminal act. He sent another email to the state assistant commissioner of health saying basically the same thing and saying Somerset Hospital was unwilling to report. And just a note about Somerset Hospital, it's in a very wealthy part of New Jersey, and it's a very big, wealthy hospital with a lot of money behind it. At the end of that call with Somerset, he told them all the calls had been recorded. A few hours later, Mary Lund contacted the Department of Health and reported the four deaths and outlined the steps the hospital was taking to investigate. Those included checking for lab errors and things like that, and they thought it was human error of some sort. She said that human resource factors were being evaluated, and independent investigators were interviewing staff. And I think what she meant by human resource factors were being evaluated meant, you know, that they might usher somebody out the door, you know, like Charlie had been so many times before. But Charlie was interviewed July 14, 2003, by attorney Raymond Fleming, hospital attorney. Fleming wanted to know why Charlie ordered and then canceled Jackson on the night Gall died. He also brought up the fact that the pharmacy was missing several vials of Jackson. He didn't accuse Charlie or threaten him, and Charlie mostly listened. And Charlie was the only nurse Fleming interviewed, according to an internal memo that was later part of the police report. The memo said the incidents could be connected, and there may be more. They were going to check billing to see if any of the patients being looked at were billed for Didge, even though it wasn't on their charts. And Fleming was going to take a look at Mrs. Hahn's charts, as well as one for a patient named Moore, who there's no other information available from the hospital about. London Fleming already suspected Charlie, and he had to be watched, Fleming pointed out in the memo. He said they agreed there wasn't anything overtly suspicious that that necessitated a call to authorities, (laughs) but all the patients are being carefully monitored, and red flags are going up for digoxin orders. Oh, and by the way, records show a number of vials of digoxin not being accounted for over the last month. That memo was on July 25th, 11 days after Fleming interviewed Charlie. Charlie, meanwhile, wasn't too concerned about the interview. It seemed to him they were just concern, concerned with Jackson. The night before his interview, on July 13, 2013, he had killed Pasquale Napolitano, and sorry, I can't pronounce some of these medications, but dobutamine, a chemical form of adrenaline. Two months later, on September 22, Charlie was still on the ward, still doing his job. That's the day he injected James Strickland with an overdose of insulin. It should have killed him, but it didn't. After suffering the horrific effects, he was in a coma for two weeks until Charlie finished him off with Jackson. Charlie didn't use Pyxis to get the digoxin. He knew better. He didn't have any canceled orders for digoxin when Strickland died. And Charlie didn't always use dig, as we know. In fact, Charlie's, at Charlie's interview with Fleming, when Fleming asked about the canceled orders, Charlie realized that they were looking at yeah. canceled orders, so he stopped doing that for digoxin. He used sodium nit- nitroprusside to kill Melvin Simcoe and May. He used it for Christopher Hardgrove and Philip Greger, too, although Gregor coded but didn't die. He used insulin on Francis Goda. He did use the Jackson on Krishna Kant up and day. On October 3, 2003, Tim Braun, a homicide cop in Somerset, got a call from the county prosecutor's office. They wanted the homicide unit to look into the, a hospital death. Braun passed it on to Detective Danny Baldwin. At the time, Braun figured it must be someone politically connected, and the prosecutor was doing more of a favor than anything else by having them look at it. It turned out to be McKinley Cruz, an older black man, so they figured it was Somerset County, New Jersey, who wasn't politically connected after all. Danny and the county coroner thought the whole thing was a waste of time because the guy, aside from being dead, looked fine, but the prosecutor called for whatever reason, and so they ran lab tests, and those came back clean. A few days later, the prosecutor sent Tim and Danny, the two detectives, to Somerset Hospital. They met with a corporate-type lawyer, Paul Nitale who told them over the last five months there have been five unexplainable patient incidents on the CCU besides Cruz. Lehman, Kane, Han, Gall, and Agoda, McKinley Cruz was the sixth, and that's the one that prompted them to call. They gave the detectives the medical charts of all the patients, and the detectives left the hospital, confused, wondering what they were supposed to do with all that information. The hospital almost pro- also promised to send their entire investigation casework. A few days later, it came. Five photocopied pages of a single fax memo, and one page appeared to be missing. That was their entire investigation file. Hmm. Wow. It was dated July 25, 2003, more than two months before. It was the memo Fleming had sent to Mary mm-hmm. Lund. What the cops didn't know is that the investigation had been kicked back and forth between the hospital and Department of Health, both of which were reluctant to act. The Department of Health commissioner said that given the drugs involved, it was premature to suspect foul play. But in late September, another senior Department of Health person discovered that there had been another death the month before that hadn't been reported, despite the fact Somerset was supposed to be reporting Hmm. all suspicious incidents. So she got together with two other senior staffers, and they decided maybe... It wasn't too early to to suspect foul play after all. The Department of Health contacted the Attorney General's office on September 26th. A week later, the hospital contacted the county attorney. Among the five-page memo was also a a photocopy of a brief note to Mary Lund from the attorney Ray Fleming saying, here's the memorandum I prepared after our meeting with Charles Cullen." The rest of the memo said that there was nothing overtly suspicious, I talked about it earlier, from the records or Cullen's demeanor that would necessitate a call to authorities. Danny Baldwin, the cop, the detective, went to talk to Lund and asked for Pixis records, but she said the machine only stores records for 30 days. Hmm. She also said they talked to all the nurses, but Cullen wasn't the focus of their investigation. Danny wanted to know why Collins was the only name that was stood out to him, that it was the only name they mentioned, but she said no. His name happened to be on that, but he wasn't any focus of investigation. She did give him the name of a phlebotomist, and that's somebody who draws blood. A man named Edward Allett, and said they should look at him. They couldn't find any criminal information on the guy or find the guy at all, the cops, when they tried to look at him. Apparently he was a freelance phlebotomist, or maybe somebody just made him up. Braun put Charlie's name in the system, even though Lund said they weren't looking at him, since it was the only name on the memo, and he figured, what the hell? They found his old criminal trespass charge in Pennsylvania and called the Palmer, Pennsylvania police. That was when he broke into Michelle's apartment. Oh, she was asleep. Yep. The dispatcher and Palmer Police found Charlie's record, and that it was just a basic trespass charge. But there's a post-it note stuck on the folder, handwritten and underlined, and it had the word to Jackson. Huh. It was a weird word to Tim Braun. He had never heard it before. The dispatcher told Braun she wasn't sure what it meant, but somebody from the state police had called the year before asking for Charlie's criminal record, and the word must have come up, and so somebody stuck it on the folder. Huh. So Tim and Danny looked through Charlie's employment history. What they could find from St. Barnabas, his first hospital, where coincidentally, 10 years before, had worked his first job in security, but not when Charlie was there. But what they could find from St. Barnabas made no mention of the criminal investigation against Charlie, the one the local police chief didn't want to pursue But there were notes about him not signing out drugs, withholding medication, hanging up unprescribed IVs, shutting down a critical patient's respiratory vents, and written orders for unprescribed insulin. A few years after he left, the paperwork for his criminal investigation had apparently been thrown out. Mm. Tim called Warren Hospital, Charlie's second place of employment, and they couldn't find Charlie's personnel file at all. They figured it had been destroyed. Hunterton stores its records with an archiving company, and the company couldn't find any records for Charlie when Tim called them. Tim called Morristown, and this time he didn't mention a homicide investigation. Mm-hmm. He didn't tell him why he was calling, and they said he could come pick up Charlie's oh, records. Oh, nice. Tim also went back to Somerset to talk to Paul Natoli, the attorney in charge of the investigation. Natoli told Tim that that five-page memo they sent him was all they had for their investigation record. They didn't take any notes on any of the, he told the police. They didn't have any okay. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, lying. Tim asked about Charlie, but Natoli said nothing comes to mind except for he was an odd guy. And they didn't sure. take any notes on their interview with him either. Danny, the other cop, called the Pennsylvania State Police about their call to the Palmer Police the year before, and they were much more forthcoming. Danny went to talk to them about the St. Luke's investigation. They had bodies, physical evidence, witnesses, and a strong suspect, but the investigation was closed. A nurse, Pat Medellin, had seen unusual deaths and also knew Charlie had been fired for diverting dangerous medications. She thought he was responsible for the deaths. This was at St. Luke's, but the administration told her they didn't think he'd harmed any patients. She told her story to a friend who was a cop, and it went up the ladder. They interviewed people at St. Luke's who all had similar stories. This was the year before the Mm -hmm. Somerset thing. Another nurse at St. Luke's had noticed very early on that people on the mend were dying unexplainably and even documented it and brought it to her superiors, but nothing was ever done about it. Several nurses and someone in the pharmacy, it turns out, had been suspicious and even kept notes and records about their suspicions. St. Luke's had finally contacted the state nursing board... Four days after Madeline notified the district attorney, but St. Luke said they didn't know anything about the DA being notified. It was a coincidence. The hospital said its investigations show there was no reason to believe anything was going on, and the deaths were within the statistical norm. Two coroners were asked by the state to look at the case, and one of them thought there could be as many as 50 deaths there after looking at it. Oh, my God. The DA's office hired a pathologist, Dr. Isidore Milakis, who also was involved in Helen Dean's suspicious death way back at Warren Hospital, but he found nothing prosecutable in the paperwork. Charlie had moved on with neutral references to Somerset (laughs) by then, and his personnel file said he resigned after repeated reprimands. So that huge investigation and all that, and that's what came of it. Tim and Danny, the two detectives, noted that St. Luke's had dealt with it in a way that had created the fewest possible legal ramifications for them, and the smallest paper trail for anyone who wanted to follow it, Graeber wrote. Five months before Tim and Danny started investigating, the Lehigh County DA closed an eight-month case on a matter of suspicious deaths possibly linked to Charlie Cullen at St. Luke's. Danny Baldwin, the detective, told Lund at Somerset, Mary Lund, the risk manager, that Charlie had a criminal record, had been fired by several hospitals for nurse practice issues. She told him the hospital would closely monitor him. (laughs) You know, so he's still working at Somerset. Yeah, of course. Tim Braun, the other detective, went to the county prosecutor, Wayne Forrest, and said they weren't equipped to investigate themselves and they needed a task force, but Forrest wasn't interested. He did give them a few county investigators to work with him. Danny Baldwin called the Department of Health, but they said they couldn't give him any information without a subpoena. He called the state nursing board and they told him the same thing. Going through the files, trying to figure out where to go next, Danny and Tim also saw a mention of the New Jersey Poison Control Department. And so they decide to pay those guys a visit. And when they walked in, Steve Marcus said, I expected you guys five months ago. I told him it was a police matter. No. So they listened to all the taped conversations that Marcus had had with Somerset Hospital. And that was four months before Somerset called the police. Jesus. Oh, So the cops finally had something to proceed their investigation, and they needed one victim to investigate. I guess that's the way it works. And so they chose Florian Gall, the pastor, because he had the highest levels of digoxin. His sister, a former nurse, Lillian, was shocked at the levels when they told her. Apparently the hospital hadn't told her about it and was shocked that the hospital didn't call for an autopsy. Meanwhile, Charlie was still working. One thing he liked to do was use his Pixis machine to order staples he could get from the supply closet. Hydrogen peroxide, aspirin, ointment. Oh. He ordered all three separately the night of October 20th, 2003. And this was, he had been interviewed, what, in July, early July. This is October. He also ordered heparin. He ordered it and then canceled it. Tylenol, acetaminophen, potassium chloride. Two more Tylenol and canceled them. Then a few seconds later, two more Tylenol. Patient Ed Zizik died at 2.30 a.m. on October 21, 2003 from an overdose of digoxin, but it didn't appear anywhere on his chart or on Charlie's Pixis. On October 30th, Charlie was stopped on the way to work and his car was impounded for unpaid parking tickets, even though he didn't have any. Ah! They drove him the rest of the way to work in a squad car. And what they had done was taken his car to search it. Uh, I get it. He worked his shift shortly before his shift was to end. They called him in and terminated him. They told him it was for inaccuracies on his application. In his interview on 60 Minutes, one thing, he's, he was very subdued. It wasn't a very long interview, but one thing he said was, why did they keep letting me work? When this yeah, was was Why did they let me work my whole shift? I know, I know, that, but, is, that but, is... And Tim, meanwhile, the head detective, was frustrated that they couldn't get anywhere and they couldn't tie things together, even though they had all this evidence. He typed, on a whim, Pixis into his computer, Googled it or whatever, and found the manufacturer. He called, thinking maybe they could find a way to get those records that were purged after 30 days, like Mary Lund, the risk yeah. manager, told him they were. The rep didn't know what he was talking about. He was confused. The Pixis system, it turns out, Stores every piece of data entered and never does it. That would make anything. more sense. Yes, it would. And it's all in the system. It doesn't purge anything. So she's full of shit. Yeah. And so Tim Braun called the hospital and they were like, oh, okay, our mistake. And they got yeah. sh- and they got him Charlie's data. Are you fucking kidding me? But there was no smoking gun. On the night Gall died, the only De Jackson mentioned was a canceled order for De Jackson. They started interviewing the nurses. The hospital made them do it in the in the hospital in the presence of Mary Lund. Amy was the one nurse who didn't seem to be bothered by the fact that Lund was in the room. She was really pissed off that her friend had been fired, and she told Danny Baldwin that she knew the whole thing was about Charlie, and she was pissed off. Danny thought, we may be able to use this woman. He liked her spirit, I guess. <laughs> he liked the fact that she wasn't cowed by the administrator in the room. He later took her aside and showed her record of Charlie's pixous printouts and she knew right away what it meant, that Charlie had been up to something. And the cops convinced her to help them out, and she's the one who told them about the Cerner, the computer system that nurses use to keep patient records. The hospital hadn't mentioned that to the investigators at all. She began printing out Charlie's info from his Cerner for them. She also discovered how he was getting the drugs, that the drawer opens when you put a drug in and then cancel one. I guess... That doesn't happen too often with other nurses, so it wasn't something that sprang oh, to mind. Because yeah. they're so careful about the drugs and what they chart that they there would be no reason to put a drug in and cancel yeah. But Charlie did it all the time. Charlie would wheel his Cerner down the hall to work by himself. She used to joke about him writing a novel on yeah. it and figured he wanted to be alone to concentrate. But it turns out she realized it was right where the runner from the pharmacy came up with the big tote of drugs. And Charlie would always take it from the guy and bring it to the storage room, helpfully. And everybody thought he was just being very helpful. He'd bring the drugs in and stock the unit. Oh. Nice. She also realized that in the Pixis, Tylenol and Digoxin were in the same drawer. Ah, oh, I get it. And Charlie's Tylenol cancellations matched up with many of the Jackson deaths. She thought... Because he spent a lot of time on his Cerner, he must have awesome charts. And I guess on the Cerner, you can go in and look at other people's stuff, which she had never done. She was an ethical person. It never occurred to her. But when she looked at Charlie's charts, they were awful. They were a mess. They were horrible. They were barely filled in. And she figured if he's spending that much time but not filling them in, he must be outputting something. So she checked. You could check and see somebody's work history in him, and she saw that he was going and calling up patients that weren't his. Many, many, many patients who weren't his. Wow. It turns out he was browsing patients and hunting his victims. Wow. Like Florian Gall wasn't his patient, but on the night he died, Charlie was checking his chart constantly, sometimes minutes apart, half an hour after the, it turned out he had his big digoxin spike that registered <laughs> in the lab work. So what he would do is he would either spike the IV bags or do it deliberately to a person and then follow what happened to them on the CERN. Well, what would be the fun of it if he didn't... Yeah, so Amy figured out for the cops that Charlie would load the IV bags in the storage room. He'd load them with drugs that shouldn't be in there and then he'd follow them, like following a baseball box score or something. Meanwhile, Charlie was at home. This time he hadn't found a new job. He wasn't working and his girlfriend Kathy was trying to kick him out still, but she was pregnant. Oh geez. Amy convinced Charlie that she was worried she was being, that she was being investigated. The cops had asked her to talk to him, and she talked to him on the phone. Some of the calls were recorded by the cops, but he didn't say much on the phone. The cops brought him in for questioning, but he didn't give much, and they still felt they needed a smoking gun. Eventually, they talked her into meeting him in a restaurant wearing a wire. She and Charlie met at a restaurant, and over the course of three hours, she eventually got him to say things... Like he got in trouble at St. Barnabas because someone was spiking IV bags Ooh. in the storeroom with insulin. And St. Barnabas had no record of ever saying that. Of course they did. But she finally told him that she thinks he, did, he was doing something bad. And she tells him how she cares about him and begs him to tell her what happened. And there had been a story in the paper that morning that Somerset was investigating a nurse for killing people. And she had the paper. He had been reading the paper when she got into the restaurant. She said to him... I've been in nursing all these years, and no one has ever accused me of murder. And you're being accused of five. And people think you actually killed people. After a minute or two of trying to get him to say it, she finally says, I know you killed them, Charlie. He looks at her, and she said his face and his eyes just totally changed. And it was like there was nothing, like no human being there at all. It gave her chills. And he started growling, and she realized later the wire wasn't good, and she couldn't even really tell what he was saying. But when they heard later on the wire, it was he was saying, let me go down fighting. And when he came out, they arrested him. Charlie was initially charged with the murder of Florian Gal and the attempted murder of Jin Kung Han, the two De Jackson patients Somerset was investigating. He told detectives he had murdered as many as 40 patients over his career, but it was later determined just through his interviews and stuff that it could be as many as 400. He pleaded guilty in a New Jersey court eventually to killing 13 and attempting to kill two others. While he was employed at Somerset. As part of his plea agreement, he promised to cooperate with authorities if they didn't seek the death penalty. And a month after that, he pleaded guilty to the murder of three more patients in New Jersey. In November 2004, he pleaded guilty in an Allentown, Pennsylvania court to killing six patients and trying to kill three others. Oh, my God. In Pennsylvania, Cullen was sentenced to over 100 years to be served consecutively, in New Jersey, he was sentenced to 18 consecutive life sentences and is not eligible for parole until 2403. That's not a mistake. Yeah, he's wow. at the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton. And this interesting tidbit that shows, you know, he's not necessarily on there. On March 10th, 2006, Cullen was brought into the courtroom of Lehigh County President Judge William H. Platt for a sentencing hearing. Cullen, who was upset with the judge, kept repeating, Your Honor, you need to step down <laughs> for 30 minutes until Platt had Cullen gagged with cloth and duct tape. I think I remember that. Oh, God, yeah. Even after being gagged, Cullen continued to try to repeat the phrase. In this hearing, Platt gave him an additional six life sentences. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I'd keep going. if And as part up. of his plea agreement, he's been working to try to identify additional victims in 2006 he donated a kidney to the brother of a former girlfriend, and people were very judgmental about that. But I think when somebody needs a kidney to save their life, that people should well, just... you need a judge, but you take it from whoever you can get it well, from. They well, they thought, oh, here he is trying to redeem himself by saving someone's life. I guess he had said something like, you know, if I can save someone's life, and people just shat all over him for it. And also, he finally said about his motive, and I don't know how much weight you want to give this. I don't give it any. He gave patients overdoses so that he could end their suffering and prevent hospital personnel from dehumanizing them. However, not all of his victims were terminal, as we know, and completely contradicts his behavior because he... Full of shit. Yeah. You know, one of the nurses at St. Luke's even said that people on the mend were dying, and that's what had concerned her. Mm Mm-hmm. He told detectives in 2003 that when he was arrested, that he had lived most of his life in a fog, that he had blacked out memories of murdering most of the victims. He couldn't recall how many of them there were or why he had chosen them. And in some cases, he denied committing any murders at a given hospital. But after reviewing medical records, he admitted that he was involved in patient deaths. Hmm. And I think part of it is the way, you know, it's not like he went up to people and stabbed them. So to him, the murders were very impersonal. Charles Graber wrote, he didn't care about the person. I mean, he didn't care who the person was. He didn't know the names of a lot of them. Yeah. And a lot of it, he was just putting it in IV bags, yeah, and it was like yeah. overdose roulette. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was just a really passive-aggressive way of killing people. Yeah. And I think he probably just, he he doesn't have any idea how many... He well, did. to him they they weren't people anyway. Right, and mm. and what's really troubling are the hospitals that yeah. that all of them knew there were problems with the guy, and all they did was quietly pass they him do along, kind of like the Catholic priest thing. I and know, everything. they do it. Just, well, you know, like I'm sure. I mean, I've never watched that show, Nurses Who Killed. Yeah, I. But have, I've read a couple of different. There's been a couple different nurses that have been doing stuff like that that I've read about, and it's the same story. Right, because hospitals time. they don't want lawsuits because it's all about PR. And I think the biggest reasons these hospitals, particularly Somerset at the end, dragged their feet and lied to the police and didn't help with the investigation and call the police is they were afraid of lawsuits and afraid of bad publicity. And they got a lot of money from people and were afraid of not getting the money. And it's a laugh how many times they said they were trying to protect patients. They ain't give a shit about it. They're trying to protect their asses. That's what bothers me about it is that that they deliberately covered up. They lied. I mean, they yeah. lied about the machine purging uh, I know. Purging records. Yeah. And they, and they didn't even tell about the charting no. system. And they lied about them suspecting him. I know. He was, you I know. know. I know. It's crazy. And and like I mean, how long could he have gone on? And like it, when he, Steve Marcus was, I know he could have gone on. He killed, killed at least five people between the time Steve Marcus told them you really need to call the police, and when Charlie was finally arrested. And the only reason he was arrested was because the cops were so persistent yeah. and did their jobs. Yeah. Saint Luke's wasn't they were just letting him work, well, I guess it's easier to just turn a blind eye. I mean, I've worked with incompetent people before where people were turning a blind eye or people right. who were stealing or something like that. And that's bad enough. Right. But when someone's killing people, and the other and thing, you're just like, oh, well, maybe he is, maybe he is, and I don't really know. so we'll right just, and the know. other thing, too, is like the amount of people at St. Luke's who brought their concerns I to know. people. And it's nobody, insane. you know, and it that's like a lot of jobs too, where the people on the ground are seeing something, but the bosses don't it looks like hear that out. one I did about Annie Dukin. Yes, yeah. I mean, her, her co workers were like, she's doing shit, and her supervisor, said, oh, she's doing a great job. Yeah, yeah, because oh they my don't want to, but in any case, well, thank wh- you for th- that. Thanks. So, for and it. the one thing that kind of surprises me is here's a guy, and I guess I kind of remember when he was arrested and stuff. I remember him being gagged yeah, with the duct tape. Yeah. But here, you know, there are serial killers who are famous for their, and maybe it's because his serial killing wasn't grisly and gruesome. And the people were ill. A lot of right. them very ill um, and could have died anyway. <sighs> so maybe to people, it's not as, it's not as and, horrible as these young beautiful women right. or young women, or, and some or of them may have. But the thing is, it's not his decision to kill. It's against law, and it's not his decision to kill people. No, I no, I'm not saying I'm not, No, and I know I you're not. But I'm saying maybe that's why it's not as intriguing for people, or people don't right. people don't talk about it like they do, for and, instance, uh, you know, uh, the night stalker or something. You right. Know? And I think too, a lot of people are kind of cowed by doctors and hospitals. And people who would bring concerns and kind of be shooed away and stuff, and people think, okay, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything about medical Well, stuff. if somebody in your family dies, I probably wouldn't question it. If one of my parents or something was in the hospital because of heart right. problems, or somebody was in a car accident and yeah. they was badly burned. Yeah. I wouldn't be like, because I want to know why they right. died. I mean, you just kind of accept it. Yeah. Though, like, I'm sorry they didn't make it. And you're yeah, just like, it's, but yeah, so that was Charlie Cullen. Well, thank you. The 60 Minutes interview, with Steve Croft on 60 Minutes. I remember. So they have the author, Charles Graber, and they have Steve Marcus, who's funny, the poison, like the poison control, control, guide, control who guy, who actually gets emotional, as they say, when he talks about... The I fact that people why. died after he tried I hope to. Hope everybody did, but they should. Re, they should all have regrets for their part in it. Yeah, because they could have prevented other people's deaths
1: if and they, they hadn't didn't. been
0: worrying about covering and their own 400 asses. Four hundred friggin' people. But in any case, we have some recommendations or a recommendation, yes, right? We do. <laughs> Before we start, we want to say that there will be spoilers. Yes. we can't possibly avoid them and talk about it. And we're going to be talking about West Cork, the podcast. So if you don't I'm want to hear the spoilers, on audio, Audible. Audible. We're going to we're going to spoil the shit out of it. So if you'd rather listen to it before you listen to us. We'll I won't take come, come back later. The overview is a French woman who had a vacation home and she was the wife of a producer? film producer but she had a vacation home in, in West Cork Ireland on this peninsula in this little town was murdered and legend and it has never been solved or people say it has and it been was solved 19 19- It was December 23rd, 1996. She was at the house alone. Her husband and son were back in France. Some people would say it has been solved. They just haven't convicted the guy. Her name is Sophie Toscan Plantier. Yeah, I didn't want to try to say it. And I didn't say it very well. but But one of the really good things about the podcast, which is... 13 episodes is the story arc. They don't just spill everything at the beginning. It's kind of a book, a linear story. It kind of reminds me of if you were reading a novel about it how it would unfold. Yes, yes, like a good mystery. I mean, they really do a good job. They They set up all the characters, they set up the setting. Yes. West Cork is a place where a lot of people end up, they They say. They call them blow-ins. And you know what, it reminded me of of, of Maine. We live in Maine. It did remind me. Because there are people that come here and we are kind of the same. Our state is kind of the same thing. It's the eastern tip of the country. You're kind of like keep going and you're, you you end up in edge. some of these places and the, it it does attract a lot of people who have vacationed here at one time and then they want to come back and live here because Or they people like who are it. looking for a simpler kind of Yeah, kind of thing. you know. And it does have some eccentric and arty people. And so. they and they do a good job of building the characters, yes, so that You think you know all about somebody and Mm -hmm. then you don't. And, And it was a lot of typical things where she came under a lot of criticism after she was murdered for what was she doing there, you know, instead of being home at Christmas with her husband and son Victims shaming and unsupported slut shaming oh, yeah. type thing. And I don't think she was involved no. with anything no. that they No, they would have known. Of. They said later they would have known. So the podcasters are Sam Bungie and Jennifer Ford, who are a married couple, British and they narrate it in, kind of in tandem, which I thought was going to be annoying, but it turned out it wasn't. No, they do a good job, and they don't insert themselves. In a lot of ways, this podcast reminded me of Shit Town, S-Town, yeah. as we call it. In a lot of ways, it's similar in that the setting is important, and there's a bigger, almost larger-than-life kind of guy in the yes, center Ian of Yes, Ian Bailey, let's say, because we're spoiling. A uh, former journalist, in quotes, who, yeah. who it turns and out... Poet. Who it, turn, who, it turns out, has a lot of issues. And one of my... The only issue I have with this entire podcast is that they do make the point that in a lot of ways, because he's he can be very obnoxious and he does things that you don't understand why he's doing them and stuff, they do make the case that people may suspect him in part because of his personality he's an and asshole. he's from yeah. away. But I also feel that people just say oh he he acts this way and he acts that way and why would somebody act that way kind of like why would and even the narrators in, in some cases do it and it's like there are a number of disorders that a lot of people have where you blurt things out and say the wrong thing and behave obnoxiously and have grandiose grandiose ideas and stuff and so on one hand yeah there are things that come out about him that are red flags. On the other hand, blurting something out or saying the wrong thing or saying things that seem like... like oh, like being sarcastic, like saying, yeah, I Yeah, I did it. At. Just like the West Memphis Three. Yeah. yeah. Saying, yeah, I did it or whatever. The nuance of that kind of behavior is never really given the yeah. attention. Like people just constantly say, well, why would he act this way? Yeah. Like acting a certain way is an indication that... You're, that you've killed somebody or that you must be guilty of something. And the other thing is he was not well-liked. Some people liked him, just like anybody. He, he, he's, he's a, he's a, a narcissist. taste. Although I hate to just throw that word around. He's totally self-absorbed. Yes. And he's one of those people that when you see coming, you're like, oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah, I don't want to get Fucking stuck on know Fucking know-it-all. He's full of himself. Yes. Blah, blah, blah. And even people like that, sometimes there are people who are friends with them. Right. And... And and, and they, I think they do a good job of giving a real three-dimensional view of yes. who he is. And they don't come out at first. In fact, I think the first mention is in one of the early episodes. They say we were being shown around by a journalist, yes, a Ian journalist. Bailey. Yes. And then they don't mention him again no. for an episode or they two. They don't mention him for a while. The one thing I... That bugged me about Shit Town sometimes was the guy kind of stuck himself a little bit too much into the story. They don't do this, although they they are part of the story. I think they're better storytellers if we're going to compare it to Shit Town. They even mentioned that they had mixed feelings about him. And it's hard when somebody is an unlikable person who's accused of a crime to separate the fact that you don't like them from the fact that they may not have done it. Right. And also, because he was from away... It's easier for people to believe Especially, he did yeah. it. It's very much like a murder mystery yeah. in that it is a small community. Right. And he never leaves. He No, he that. stays there, which some people hold against him. And it's like, it's where he lives. And one thing, too, is it reminded me in some ways of making a murderer. I don't know if Stephen Avery is guilty or not. But the problem is, and the problem with this, and they do a really, really good job of reeling it out and the storytelling on this is just so good, is that the police fucked up so much, and there were so many things that, like, in making a murder, you don't have the police department that's being sued by the guy, investigate the guy. And this, the cops just zeroed in. They did what good police don't do, which is they found themselves a suspect and then tried to make the case fit it instead of following the evidence. And granted, there wasn't a lot of evidence. They tramped over. There were a lot of issues because they, it was out in the yeah, middle of nowhere. They and, and they didn't do things the way they were supposed to from the beginning. They also weren't always ethical or doing things by the book or the way they were supposed right. to. Right, and we find out, if big, I it, big you go spoiler, a big, big spoiler here, we find out a witness who said she saw him. Ian Bailey walking down the road that night at 2 in the morning, Ashley saw totally, was may convinced may by, may or may not have, because she was sure of it, but it sounds like the police, which I find totally believable, that the police convinced her she saw him. Her first description of who she saw was, I mean, Ian Bailey was very tall. He was very tall. obvious. he kind of Gregory Peckish. You can't look. mistake him for yeah. somebody else. But the guy she saw was much smaller, much paler, and other things. Her first description of the person she saw was totally different. It eventually mysteriously changed. And the police say she's full of shit, that they made her change it. But I think we've seen enough cases. To me, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that the police would make somebody change their story. The big thing with her is... Somebody was in the car with her, and she won't say yes, cause who it, it was. Because it was like three in the morning, where she and saw she this was person. married at the time, and she won't say who it was, and she still won't say who it was. And to me, it's almost obvious. I feel like if I were reading a mystery or writing a mystery, that other person in the car is a cop. Yeah, probably either a cop or a local politician. Somebody that there's some reason why, and why won't they come forward? Too? Right. I mean, it's years later. She's admitting, okay, I was in the car with someone who wasn't my husband. At first, she didn't want to. Um, when she first told them, she didn't want her husband to find out or anything. And as the years went by, I believe she got divorced and stuff. Yes. And maybe she didn't care as much, but she right. still wouldn't she say. She still won't watch. say. In the and guy, says, who it was won't ever right, come well, forward. Well, she says he's dead now. At, on the last episode she oh, saw yeah. that. and well, when they when when Sam was questioning her about it but she still won't say who it was and she really can't give a good reason why she won't no, it's very and frustrating. to me that means that there's on. it just seems like she's not and the other you. thing the thing about Ian too is he changes his story yes he changes what he was doing that first he, he says he wasn't out at all. He never went for walks at night. No, they asked him, have you ever, you know, oh, no, 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 I don't usually do that. But then it turned out he was yeah. out. He also says he never met Sophie, the victim. But it turned out he had met her. He had not only, once. or other or other people say he had. Yes. Like, my feeling is, and that's another thing, and it's not a major issue because they cover enough bases, but if we're going to believe what one person says with whole cloth then we should believe what Ian says with whole cloth. And if we're going to question what he says is the truth, then we shouldn't just believe somebody else is yes. telling the truth. Yes. I mean, as you know, people's memory, you can think something happened, it happens to all of us. Yes. You can think something happened, and 20 years later, you're sure it happened. There was a guy who was sure he saw Ian, and I can't remember what the context was, and it was proven that it wasn't yes. Ian yes. that so he, he saw. And, and oh, he, oh, when he well, saw uh, the guy on the bridge or the guy right. somewhere yeah and it's like what we talked about in the deer hunting yes. episode and he admits he says you can tell me i didn't see him but, but in I my s- mind's eye that i saw him." right and that's all i could think of is people who yes. say it was a deer yes. you know because people believe and you wonder how much because this murder has taken on a life of its own how much people have little stories because they want to be part of it. Or they exaggerate something. And I'm not saying no and nobody's telling the truth. Yeah. But you know who wasn't telling the truth was the cops through a lot of it. And I the know. cops totally fucked up. And one thing I like about technologically on this is some of the recordings yes. of the cops and stuff are hard to hear. But they always... Sam and Jennifer always clarify what they yes. said. Like, all, all I could really hear was fuking. fuking. I know. It's amazing that some of the stuff they have, because the cops, a lot of their conversations were taped. And inadvertently, they accidentally taped themselves and then kept the tapes. Yeah, they kept the tapes, yeah. which is crazy. They just fucked it up. And the thing is, obviously something happened. She was in her nightclothes, but she had boots and a coat on. Right. And so she, she ran. Right. It looks like they said it looked like she was running. If you ever find me dead outside in my nightclothes clothes boots on, it meant that I was in bed or getting ready for bed and heard something outside oh, yeah. and, and went out. And it makes out. me wonder, what, why was she outside? Unless yeah. The only thing I can think of, if she was martyred, which uh, the, the, so there was another... Theory that a horse kicked her in the head, but why would she even be outside yeah, with a horse? That's the same as owl. I could the think owl. an owl the in the owl. staircase. Maybe an owl, like yeah, chase the yeah. horse and head. Yeah, and I, I the, the guy head. who has that theory seems very sincere, but I just can't. I don't buy think it. that that would have happened. But I, I could see it if but, it was during the day. But. but I can also see. I mean, it wasn't a secret that she went to West Cork and was in West Cork, and there was possibly a mysterious guy from away that that Marie Farrell, or whatever her name is, saw. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that there was somebody she was involved with or something in France or somebody who had an obsession with her and went to Ireland to kill her because they knew she was going to be yes, alone. that's true. And, you know, not her husband, so not I'm her think, ex-husband. Well, I was thinking that somebody could have come to her door or something. Something happened, like maybe somebody did try to force the way in, and she, or they did, and she ran out of her house because right. she was trying to get away or from somebody. Or even because it's a small town in the country, somebody even could have come to her door and said, although this would not be somebody she would know necessarily, but would say, I have car trouble up in the lane. You know, can you come help me? You know, and she would have put her boots on or something, gone out to see you know, something like yeah, that. Who not. knows? What I'm saying is though, there's enough doubt that if I were on a jury and he was being tried yeah, here in I the US be. I wouldn't I, I wouldn't, wouldn't convict hope. him. No, I wouldn't. But disturbingly he's being tried in France because they have weird justice laws, and I'm a little disturbed. That there, and I can't remember. It's some French phrase. In France, you don't have to find reasonable doubt. No. You have to find what your heart yeah, feels. What your heart feels, which reminded me of that that judge in that the show about the guy in the at the Dodgers game. R- right, the long shot. Yeah, yeah. Where she said, "I just couldn't feel." Oh, whatever. But yeah, good but, story. But. Can you see how many fucking people who didn't do it would go to prison if it's what your heart feels? We'd have an even more racist, unstable justice system than we already have. And Ian Bailey himself. Well, he's an obnoxious asshole, so my heart feels he's the guy. But listen, one thing we didn't talk about. Is the fact that he's a fucking wife beater yes, or he is. partner beater? Yes. His partner Jules, he beat her severely. Yes, severely at least three yes. times. And he downplayed it when I asked and about it. And she did too. She too, typical, as many victims too. Yes, and I was very frustrated with her. I can't help it. Yeah, but also those are times that people knew about it. Right, but he clearly is a person that when he doesn't get what he wants, he He's, is very he acts he out. He acts out, and he is angry. And so, a theory that he had a crush on Sophie or wanted to get with her, and she was not interested, it, and he pursued her, and that and I can only, see that happening. Right. Although I, it, and that the, doesn't mean there's any evidence for right. it. right. And the only thing is, it was a very small town, and you would think like her neighbors who seemed to know what was going on and stuff that somebody. The only conflict is he says he had never met her. He knew who she was. Somebody yes. pointed her out once, which I find surprising because it seems like it's, it's a, a small, small, small enough town. town. Even. But other people said, no, he was introduced to her. He wanted to show her his poems. Yeah, and, and I bet he met her. I mean, she hung out at that pub, and he did, and, too. Right. So, come on. But it, I'm surprised that there, everyone knows who she is, even if they don't know right. her. Right, but I'm surprised there aren't more people saying Hey, yeah, she'd be at the pub. He'd be at the pub. He kind of bugged her. He was, you yeah, know, that's she was. true. But maybe he played it a little more. Right. And know. it wasn't like she was in town because all the everyone time. Because knew that he was with Jules. Right. But in any case, I'm not saying, oh, he didn't do no. it. And it's. Uh, I or he could. He I, I, it's not. I wouldn't be surprised. Put it that way. But I also. And he also, a, also. he maybe couldn't. And I he mean, also made the an asshole, uh, Right. And he also made the narcissistic mistake mistake of suing the cops. Oh my and god. And also, I yes. can't remember what the other lawsuit was. the kind of Lance Armstrong. Right. But it. he had two lawsuits yes. to prove his innocence. And all they did was make him look more guilty and make more stuff come out. Yeah. And on one hand, you'd say, well, a guilty person would slink silently into the woodwork. But on the other hand, a narcissist like He's Lance gonna, Armstrong he, would, yeah. it, wouldn't would it be good enough that they were yeah. never convicted. Or, they would have to make And the sure. other thing, he, he gets concerned with the weirdest stuff. Like near the end where he's going to give himself up. You you know what? I thought of that scene when he's trying to push the partner. I'm thinking I could see me doing that because I'm so worked up about what's going to happen. I'm obsessing about it and I'm behaving in an impulsive way like people with certain disorders do and not really thinking right then. About what I want this, I want this right now. I want this to happen right now, and I'm not thinking and about the other he wants to control the the whole situation. The situation. And yeah. I didn't find and be in that... Total control. And, and that's the thing. Like that final scene, they're interviewing him in the cab as I he's going to I just thought it court. showed that that there is something wrong with that. Yes, but every kind. I don't think you, you it know, showed he was a murderer. Or I've anything. heard some other people talking about this and stuff, and it's funny because every single person has had the same reaction you did to that scene where my reaction to that scene, and yeah, it's no secret, I have ADHD. My reaction to that scene is, I don't know if I'd be that extreme, but I could see if I were going to court or something like that, I would be obsessing about the court. I would be obsessing with who was going to be where. I don't think I've ever gone somewhere in my life where I haven't tried to picture in my mind, okay, where am I going to park? Where am I going to get out? Where's the door going to be? If it's Mm -hmm. somewhere I haven't been before, or if I have to meet somebody, or if it's for work, I just constantly am going through it in my mind, trying to choreograph it, Yes. It being anxious in, in a lot of cases about what's going to happen when yeah. I get there. To tell you the truth, his behavior in that cab, I thought he was rude and obnoxious and self-absorbed, but I didn't think anything more of it than, this is a guy, and I'm not going to diagnose him. He could have ADHD. He could have some other disorder. And that's not the only thing wrong with him. But to me that scene in the cab wasn't beyond the realm. No, of, I didn't think it. No, I didn't And pushing the pregnant woman and get like trying no. to get past her. I have tried to get past fucking people when I've wanted something and later thought to myself, "Jesus, I probably was rude." Yeah. And see that's what I was talking about earlier. Well, but I wasn't saying I thought there was any evidence of Like there are so many. But I know, but people point that out that scene, and also there are so many cases in this podcast where he says or does something that's just impulsive or asshole. Well, like capitalist. when he made and, that, like, that joke to that kid about killing somebody. Right, and people are like, oh, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because he doesn't think. Because yeah. he doesn't think. And thinking. all it's an indication is of he's somebody who doesn't says things impulsively. He's very self-absorbed and doesn't think, and that's behavior that's pointed out and helps fill out his character, but I think it's another way of where people see behavior they don't understand or that they haven't thought a lot about and they think it's indicative of something that it's not yeah yeah and you know and i always, i've always felt this way that people think somebody's just being an asshole because they're being an asshole you know in a you know why can't they just act like a normal yeah. person and people don't understand that there's certain behavior that makes people can they can't help certain things. and but at the same time the fact that he does have an inc- impulse control problem and that he did beat his wife Right makes the scenario that if he did... Right, I'm not saying, oh, he's got impulse control, therefore he's not a murderer. No. What I'm saying is the... That the, doesn't make him one. Right, The yes. impulse control things are only indicative of... They're not these clues yes, into his are. guilt. they are. They are not. So it's not like, oh, only a guilty person would say or behave the way he is. No, a person with who was really self absorbed who had impulse control would say or behave the way yes. he has. But I agree to beat somebody to death would be a and big being indication. A a lot of domestic abuse issues, alcohol has a factor. Yeah. It sounded like he and Jules drank all the time. Yes. Well they were in West Cork. But <laughs> the other thing is too you know, he called himself Owen Bailey and yes. apparently she Sophie had gotten a call
1: From a journalist, Owen Bailey,
0: that she had mentioned to somebody before she she went to Westcorp. Yes. And. I would love to know more about that. It was just like almost in passing, and someone said, Oh, she said she was looking at the writings of some writer, Owen Bailey, or something. Yeah, but he had called and wanted to talk to her or interview her. And I'm not saying that that means he murdered her. No. He could have been interested in her, and he didn't want to tell the cops that because because they already had him in And that's another kind of nuance that lying about knowing her, the only response to that isn't, Well, he's lying because he killed her. It could be he's lying because why give the cops more ammo against him than they already had, well, or he doesn't want Jules to know he was going back to Marie when she first called them. Said her name was Fiona. I wonder why she called them in the first place. Like, why did she tell them she saw? She somebody? probably wonders that too. She, she said she wanted to help. I think she probably thought she could make the call and. Well, she's also the one that she besides saying she saw him on the road. She but saw him saw she man. saw him across the street. She owns a shop, she saw him across the street and she saw him when Sophie was coming out or in she okay. saw him three times. Right. But it was the other guy she saw. Well, it was a guy, yes. It was a guy with a long black coat and a staff. Who wasn't as tall. And he wasn't, no. He wasn't. He did not fit the description of of Ian. Right, at first. At first. But then later she says it was him. She swore to it in civil cases that it was him. But then guilt overtook her. See, I can't see why, if it had been Ian, why she would go through the hassle of changing her story later. Well, the thing that I don't understand is, I guess she didn't know who he was but it seems like a lot of people knew who he was. We've lived in small towns. If there's somebody who stands out, everybody knows who they are. I know, I know. 658 people. So there's no way. And so there's people on the outskirts and stuff, but there's no way in a town. there's like 1,500 people. I lived in a town with 2,500 people. Everybody um, knows your name. And people knew who I was yeah. even though if I didn't know them. If so. somebody stands out, everybody knows who they are. Especially if he's at the pub, there's they're all like And they pubs. said he used to get stand up and, and recite read his poetry, poetry and, and yeah. stuff. It's like uh, Well, okay. you know, if you're drunk, who cares? Yeah, it's I'm Ireland. Sure. And they did mention that people did stuff like that all the time. You yeah. Know? I just thought it was great. I really missed it when it ended. I, I wanted know, it to just I know, keep going I and know. going. Yes. I thought it was like one of the best ones i've listened to Yeah, not the best definitely the best true crime podcast i've listened to. and it was hard to listen to it and realize that it was not a it wasn't a fictional story it's true and i might even listen to it again because i enjoyed it so much i just i just really miss it oh so that's our podcast for today Right? Yeah, I think so. And I'm, I'm you doing can, it next time. Yeah, and you can find us on Facebook at Crime and Stuff and Twitter at Crime and Stuff. And, on and our website, Right. CrimeAndStuffOnline.com. Crime and stuff do you As know I what you're make. going to talk about next time or do you want to keep it a secret? I think I'll keep it a secret. Okay. I don't want anyone to copy us again. Yeah. And people I are know. always We've got to copy. keep them on their toes. I know they want to be like us. I know. Well, they? you can't blame them. No, know. I can't. I certainly can't. <laughs> can okay well until next time okay bye 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 so he's separated now I said after he sorry. got out and the divorce was finalized oh okay okay sorry you, you were up. playing with your phone I was looking up a picture of him I wanted to see okay. what he looked like um blah 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 Sophie making West Cork I don't give a flying fuck 21 years ago so 1996. I think it was December 23rd, 1996. It was 1996. You're right. Okay. You were right, as usual. The pair married New York, Tom. Makes me hungry. It's because a fucking husband and wife team ran some fucking marathon in West Cork, so I was trying to look. Uh Oh, fuck. Blah, 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 blah. Can I see what the fucking population is?